All right, all right. Thank you for joining me in this episode of the Gospel Truth. I'm your host, Marlon Wilson, and we have another fantastic show for you. Another fantastic debate. And this is a debate I have been looking forward to. Uh, today, we're going to be de debating is provisionism semi-Pelagianism. And I have Dr. Kurt Jarris, and I also have Turretin Fan with me, and we are going to have a ball of a discussion, a fantastic discussion. And I'm thankful for, for you joining us to hear the discussion. But before I bring you guys in, make sure you subscribe and hit that notification bell to the Gospel Truth so you don't miss out on any shows, any interviews, uh, debates, or commentaries. Make sure you are jumping in on all these debates and stuff, all right? Uh, also, if you don't know, different facets of the ministry are on different social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Make sure you're flown over those to the platforms to subscribe or follow on those platforms. Also, all this content is on podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. So make sure you are jumping on the, the podcast, all right? If you have a long drive, Second, if you're a busy person, you can listen to all this on podcast, so make sure you do that, all right? As always, I do have a shows that are coming up here in the future that I want you guys to be aware of. So coming up after this one, does God predestined all things? I have Michael Faber and Michael Borowski, and they're gonna have a fantastic discussion concerning this topic, so I hope that you are looking forward to it. After that, I have CJ Cox and Ricky Caldwell. Should we obey the law of Moses? That is coming up here soon. So if, you're, if this is right in the realm of your liking for debate, make sure that you are jumping on this one. It's coming up soon. After that, I have, uh, I think, Emmanuel and Johnny Mack jumping on, and they are going to be discussing Jesus. Is Jesus eternally divine? So this is going to be a great topic. So make sure if you this is right up your alley of debates, make sure you jump on this one, all right? After that, I have another, the Bible and Tulip. This is fun. This is sort of, a, I don't know if we're going to go into any Tulip. We shouldn't go into any Tulip today. But nonetheless, this is sort of that little mix there, right? So this debate is coming up here soon, the Bible and Tulip. So make sure you are looking forward to that debate. Also, once again, media equipment fundraiser is going on the gospel. It's going to be a long fundraiser because the amount of funds that we have to accure to get the, the media equipment. So we're looking to get media equipment to take on a road with us so we don't have to rely on the venue's media equipment. We want some nice, high-quality equipment. So we are looking for support in our efforts to garner funds to buy media equipment to take on the road and use wherever we are at right so if you got put on your heart to support the ministry with the media fundraiser you can look in the description of this video and see the fundraiser link there and so click that fundraiser link and you will be directed to the fundraiser page and if so please bless the ministry with some help all right that said we are going to have some fun today semi-pelagianism provisionism are they synonymous are they the same thing, all right? We are going to have a fun-filled discussion uh, with Dr. Kurt Jarris and Turretifan. Uh, both of these guys have been on before. Remember last time uh, Dr. Kurt Jarris was on, he debated uh, Doug Wilson, Pastor Doug Wilson, and Jarris has been missing from this platform ever since. He has been hitting me up. He's been wanting to debate this topic for a long time. And finally, Turretifan, Fan, he's been on several times. So I don't even want to punt out all the debates that Turretifan Fan has been on. So I'm excited to have these guys on. Let me bring these guys in so we can jump on this. What's up, fellas? How y'all doing? Doing great. Thanks Hello. for having us back. Awesome. I'm glad you guys have did, jumped on and came back on a gospel truth. And I am excited for this. This is going to be a fun topic, right? This is not... This is... It, Within the sort of the Facebook group realm, this is always coming up. 
but I don't think there's any platform that I could think of that's actually debated this particular topic. So this is gonna be one for the ages for people to come back and entertain and dissect and, and, and get filled up with information. So I'm excited to have you guys come on and debate this topic. All right, but before we jump into this debate, let me allow you guys to introduce yourselves to the audience, tell them what you do, blogs, YouTube channel, ministry work, whatever it is, let them know what you do so they can come check you out, all right? Start with Tour to Fan. Go ahead and give a quick introduction, man. Oh, thanks so much. I, uh, Tour and Fan, I run a blog, tourtonfan.blogspot.com, uh, which I've been blogging on for, I would say, about the last 15 years or so. And more recently, I've been more active on YouTube, a lot of the same kind of content, but uh, in a video format instead of just uh, in writing. So uh, also that gives me the opportunity to have these conversations in Calvinism with my friend Dan, who's not a Calvinist. Uh, apparently people get the wrong idea from the name of the show. So yeah, and right. I'm looking forward to this debate. All right, cool. Thank you so much once again for joining me. All right, Kurt, you got it, man. Go ahead, tell him what you do, man. Yeah, I wear a few hats. Uh, I'm the executive director of Defenders Media 501c3. We do media marketing for uh, apologists and evangelists, New Testament scholars, theologians. I'm also the uh, part-time director of marketing for Rosho Christie College Campus Ministry, but I do my theology and apologetics writing, speaking, teaching through Veracity Hill. Uh, and then finally, I'm also a uh, an aff affiliate faculty member at Colorado Christian University at the Lee Strobel Center uh, for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics. So a number of hats keep me busy, but I feel blessed to be doing my work and getting paid for it through uh, doing theology and apologetics. All right, all right, good stuff, guys. Excellent, so everyone in the chat, make sure you guys go check them out and check them out, see what they do. All right, we're gonna jump to this debate. The topic is, is provisionism, semi-Pelagianism? Terrence Fan, you're arguing affirmative. Dr. Kurt, you're arguing negative. And so we're gonna start that with 10 minute opening statements. We're gonna follow that with five minute rebuttals. Then we're gonna have a 40 minute cross-sex with both parties. We get 20 minutes each to lead with questions. And we're gonna have follow that with five minute closings. And then we have a 30 minute Q&A from the audience. Sounds good? Sounds great. All right, all right. Uh, Kurt, you are arguing affirmative, so you'll be up first. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Ah, my bad. <laughs> Terrence fan, you are arguing affirmative, so you are going to be up first. See, you should have seen, you should have seen Kurt's face. I was like, deja face. vu. Like, Stunned, like, what? <laughs> no, no. All right, Terrence fan, you're up first, man. You got the got the stage, man. Uh, I'll give you time to share your, present, your PowerPoint presentation. And then when you begin to speak, I'll start your time. Thanks so much. Uh, first off, let's see where we're going. First, I'm going to define what semi-Pelagian and provisionism mean. Then I'll evaluate two aspects of provisionism with respect to the semi-Pelagian spectrum. And finally, I'll judge provisionism according to two canons of two of the relevant church councils. First of all, some background definition. The fall resulted in the spiritual death of man. After the fall, by nature, man is incapable of humility, repentance, faith, or any other right action or attitude toward God. Accordingly, it is only by God's grace that man does anything good. This biblical position was advocated by Augustine in the beginning of the 5th century against a contrary position attributed to Pelagius and Celestius. They were accused of teaching that man's nature is unchanged by the fall, and that mankind is able to do good of his own accord. The view that says man's nature is well and grace is not needed to do what's right is called Pelagianism. 
the view that says man's nature is dead and that any good thing a man does is by God's grace is called Augustinianism. Each of these views has various outworkings as to the nature of free will, the guilt of Adam's sin, the atonement, God's knowledge, predestination, sanctification, and merit in the Christian life. The battle between these two positions was seemingly short-lived. The Council of Carthage of 418 condemned various aspects of the Pelagian doctrines with a set of canons, and those canons seem to have been widely accepted throughout the ancient church. Nevertheless, the canons only condemned Pelagianism, but did not at the same time fully teach Augustinianism. Thus, there was left some room for a middle way between August Augustinianism and Pelagianism. This leads us to, as the name implies, semi-Pelagianism is a system of beliefs between Pelagianism and Augustinianism. Sorry about that. Uh, here we go. So from my standpoint, this label, semi-Pelagianism or semi-Pelagian, is apt for a system that includes some, but not all, of the Pelagian errors, or a system that includes a departure from Augustinianism in the direction of the Pelagian errors, but which does not go all the way to the Pelagian extreme. For example, the teaching that man's nature is somehow sick, but not dead, lies between the Pelagian view that man's nature is unharmed and the Augustinian position that it is dead. This is one of the classic examples of semi-Pelagian anthropology. Provisionism. I'm defining provisionism in terms of the PROVIDE acronym promoted by Dr. Leighton Flowers and his Soteriology 101 efforts. This is a group that came out of the traditional Baptist statement group. And in some ways, I think that its uh, views are a little bit different. There are some ambiguities in the PROVIDE acronym and its uh, graphic that's provided. And so for interpretation of provisionism's beliefs, I'm turning to the media provided by Soteriology 101, including its tweets, uh, web postings at Soteriology 101, and that kind of thing. There's also a YouTube uh, channel as well. Because time's limited, I'll focus on two of the most central aspects of the Augustinian-Pelagian divide, anthropology and grace. Provisionism is semi-Pelagian on the nature of man. When we come back to the semi-Pelagian anthropology mentioned above, we see that Flowers unambiguously opposes the Augustinian position that mankind is born with a moral inability to respond willingly, as in his Born Dead article and his The Walking Dead, Man's Fallen Condition article. More specifically, the key point of the Augustinian position that Flowers objects to is this. According, this is a quotation from him. He says, the key point in this statement quoting some uh, reform literature, is the sentence that reads, and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. As to dead in sin, Flowers compares the fallen man to the prodigal son rather than to Lazarus. As to by his own strength, Flowers only acknowledges that our natural strength is from God. As to convert himself, Flowers compares the situation to a person not being able to perform a heart surgery on themselves, but being able to submit to the doctor's will to perform that surgery. As to prepare himself thereunto, Flowers refers to the truth of God's word as the sufficient preparation for conversion. At the same time, the PROVIDE acronym implies, and the judicial statement affirms, that every person who is capable of moral action will sin, and that because of the fall of Adam, every person inherits a nature and environment inclined 
towards sin. Those flowers seems to fall short of the pure Pelagian extreme that says some people never sin or that there's no effect on human nature from the fall. Provision is also, provisionism is also semi-Pelagian on grace. The other major issue is the issue of grace. In pure Augustinianism, grace comes before even our desire to humble ourselves, to confess our sins, to repent of our sins, and to trust in Christ. Moreover, the grace doesn't just come in advance in Augustinianism, it causes us to humble ourselves. It causes us to confess our sins, it causes us to repent of our sins, and it causes us to trust in Christ. We really do those things, but we do so because grace causes us to do so. Flowers characterizes the Augustinian position as irresistible grace and calls the Arminian position of prevenient grace, which states that grace comes before and enables these things, doesn't uh, intrinsically cause them, that he calls that the Arminian error. For Flowers, the grace that comes before faith is the gospel message itself and a generalized ability to believe as part of what it is to be a human being. We might also throw into that the atonement itself. When Leighton affirms original sin, he's using the following weakened definition, not the Augustinian one. He says, this is why we can affirm the concept of original sin, man is born with a sinful nature and in need of a savior, while denying the doctrinal teaching of total inability. Man is born unable to see, hear, understand, or turn in light of God's clear revelation. Moreover, in The Fate of the Unevangelized, another article, Leighton undermines his gospel first argument. When Leighton mentions the gospel as an antecedent grace, a grace that comes before faith, when posed with the question, what about those who never hear the gospel? Leighton's response is that if they acknowledge the truth of the little revelation that they have received, then God is faithful to entrust them with more. In other words, God will give people the gospel in response to the human's initial act of acknowledging the truth of the little revelation they have received. What about alternative definitions? Some will say that by simply defining Pelagianism functionally, in terms of the spectrum that lies between Augustinianism and Pelagianism, I've departed from the historical definitions of that term. Well, the label was first coined by Theodore Beza in the 1500s to describe errors he saw at that time. Beza's definition essentially aligns with my own, and out of about five or so errors that Beza identifies, Flowers would agree with Beza's opponents on four. And I'm confident that Beza would agree with my use of his label for flowers. The label was also used by the Lutheran formula of Concord, and for similar reasons to those expressed above, flowers seems to fit at least two out of the three errors identified in that church document as semi-Pelagian. Around the same time, the label was also used by Roman Catholic opponents of Louis de Molina. While flowers is not, as far as I know, a Molinist, it's reasonable to conclude that provisionism is closer to Pelagianism than Molinism is. So if the Roman Catholic definition is the one to go with, then it seems Flowers is for, farther towards the Pelagian end of the spectrum. The same is true of the functional definition of the term used in various systematic theologies among reformed theologians in the centuries following Beza's introduction of the term into the theological vocabulary. Flowers' position falls within the bounds of most, though perhaps not all, of the standard usage of the term. But what about the anachronistic historical definition? That leaves us with the question of church history. As I mentioned at the beginning, the Pelagian controversy as such was over fairly quickly. On the other hand, a further controversy arose, which is often associated with John Cassian and Faustus of Riez. This controversy lasted for about a century until it was ended seemingly at the 529 Council of Orange. Although the term didn't exist at the time, 
Many historians today refer to Cassian and company as the semi-Pelagians, and some people define semi-Pelagianism in terms of the canons of the Council of Orange. In my view, Flower's position falls foul of all eight of the anti-Pelagian canons of that council, and at least one of the anti-Pelagian uh, canons of the Council of Carthage. So if we measure by can, the canon five or canon seven, in my view, both of these cases, Leighton would say that even without grace, a person can fulfill divine commands and that a person can assent to the preaching of the gospel through their natural powers without some further illumination and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in summary, I've identified uh, as a general statement about seven different dimensions of Pelagianism, and I would say certainly of these, about at least four and a half are met by flowers, uh, with the focus of today's presentation being on one and two. And so functionally and historically, provisionism is semi-Pelagian. All right, thank you, uh, fan for that presentation and now uh kurt you're up for your opening statement and i'll allow you time to get your presentation up and we'll go for it great thanks yeah and i apologize i realized i was unmuted the whole time so people may have heard me shuffling papers and so my nah, apology you're, you're, you were transitioned off the screen so all that goes mute when you're when you're not in the screen so you're good <laughs> excellent thank you excellent work there uh all right let's see if i get this powerpoint up and running if I do it the right way, there you go. Does that, that looks clear? Looks clear. Okay. Well, I would like to thank Marlon for the invitation to speak at this digital event, and for Turretin Fan for agreeing to participate. Turretin Fan is the persona that my Christian brother goes by, but for convenience, as the evening goes on, I will refer to him as Frank. The subject of tonight's debate is: Is provisionism semi-Pelagianism? The subject is not, is provisionism biblical or true, or is semi-Pelagianism biblical or true? So tonight I'm not asking my Christian brothers and sisters to reconsider their biblical interpretation. Tonight I'm asking them to reconsider how the term semi-Pelagian has been used in theological discussions. Another caveat I'd like to state up front is that while I have some sympathies to the views of provisionists, I don't consider myself one due to some disagreements over their positions and even the uh, aforementioned ambiguities of the provide acrostic. In denying that provisionism is semi-Pelagianism, one must first provide definitions to these terms. I suspect that Frank and I will have some conversation about these terms, what they mean, and the related subject matter. I watched a number of Frank's prepisodes, as he called them, and while uh, I'm discussing this issue with him for the first time, I already perceive good camaraderie from watching this video, and I hope we'll have a, a rest of this enjoyable debate. Provisionism is a newer movement that was birthed out of Southern Baptist traditionalism. There is a history to be explained there, but I won't use my time to explain that history. Provisionism is best defined using the provide acrostic. This is an acrostic found at soteriology101.com and was used by Leighton Flowers, the most well-known representative and self-described popularizer in a video four years ago called What is Provisionism? And we'll review this now. So people sin, which separates all from fellowship with God, therefore divine provision became necessary. 
responsible. That is, everyone is able to respond to God's appeals for reconciliation because a divine provision will be heard and understood. Open door is the divine provision offered impartially to all for anyone to enter through faith or whoever may come to his open arms. Vicarious atonement is the divine provision given of sufficient value for the sins of the whole world and provide a way for anyone to be saved on the basis of Christ's shed blood. Illuminating grace, pay attention to this one. Illuminating grace is the divine provision offered sufficiently to all and provides clearly revealed truth so that all can know and respond in faith. Destroyed for unbelief and resisting the Holy Spirit's drawing to God's mercy will be the divine provision of justice. And finally, eternal security is the divine provision that is everlasting for all true believers. That's provisionism. Now, what is semi-Pelagianism? And here we have some definitions as my title flies in after the content. <laughs> While not denying the necessity of grace for salvation, the uh, semi-Pelagianism holds that and has maintained that the first steps toward the Christian life were ordinarily taken by the human will and that grace supervened only later. Uh, so this is an important definition, and I'll also follow that up with the Evangelical Dictionary of Theo Theology, uh, which holds uh, something akin to this. Uh, that the unaided will performed the initial act of faith. So these two definitions or descriptions are largely systematic in nature. And I know we'll get into the, we'll perhaps get into the historical discussion of the term, but these are from the scope and framework of systematic theology. This is what systematicians refer to as semi-Pelagianism. I have three main arguments for believing that provisionism is not semi-Pelagianism. Argument number one, doctrinal differences. Provisionism appears to hold positions which are at odds against semi-Pelagianism on the necessity of grace, election, and justification. Let's look at the necessity of grace. According to common systematic descriptions, semi-Pelagianism is the position that humans can take the first steps of salvation devoid of grace. Provisionism, on the other hand, holds that divine grace precedes the human decision. Divine grace precedes the human decision in a number of ways, from the divine work in Historia Salutis and the atoning work of Christ to the individual occasions of the preaching, hearing, and reading of the gospel. The I in provide holds, illuminating grace is the divine provision offered sufficiently to all and provides clearly revealed truth so that all can know and respond in faith. Without that illuminating grace, the truth would not be revealed to persons, and so is a prerequisite for the choice of the will. Even on a narrower view that provisionism is identical to Southern Baptist traditionalism, Articles 2 and 8 explicitly describe the Holy Spirit's drawing and calling a necessary condition. And furthermore, I think it's Article 4, which talks about the grace of God be necessary and complete in its, uh, oh, here it is. <clears throat> we affirm the grace of God's generous decision to provide salvation for any person by taking all of the initiative in providing atonement. That's Article 4 of the traditional statement. But let's suppose that you're not persuaded by this and that these graces described are external grace, not internal grace. Well, there are three reasons there. You can see the lowercase a, b, and c for thinking why this is misguided. First, external grace's effect is an internal result. External grace's effect is an internal result. 
Second, God is the formal cause of the human will, and thus his grace is necessary for making the will what it is. Faustus of Ries referred to this grace as the prima gratia. Third, nothing precludes provisionism from embracing a concurrent model of divine grace. By concurrence, I mean that when the human makes a free will choice, that is the grace of God working. R.J. Matava describes it as, God concurs in the action of the human agent to bring about a certain effect, such that there is but one action and one effect, even though there are two agents. So, for these three reasons, I think provisionism avoids the charge of semi-Pelagianism on the subject of nature and grace. But let's consider election. It appears that Leighton Flowers holds to a corporate election model of predestination. In his video, What is Provisionism? Within the 20-minute mark, he defines predestination as... By predestination, we mean the predetermined redemptive plan of God to justify, sanctify, and glorify whosoever freely believes. All people are created with equal value as image bearers of God. He continues on and on, but for our purposes, we can contrast this corporate election model against the alleged semi-Pelagians of the 5th century in Roman Gaul, who held to something far closer to classical Arminian view of individual election. Lastly, let's look at justification. Recall that for semi-Pelagianism, it's alleged that the human will is unaided in its choice to accept the gospel, but that divine grace comes later. Divine grace attending later describes not only the process of sanctification, but in justification as well. For some accused of semi-Pelagianism, the, the concern was over faith plus works righteousness in order to be justified. Provisionism as a subset of Protestantism holds to sola fide, that an individual is justified before God by faith alone, and that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to believers. And so we see there again with Article 4 of the traditional statement uh, that it's God's generous decision to provide salvation for any person by taking all the initiative. So for the provisionist, Christ's atoning work on the cross is all that's needed, nothing else. And salvation is a gift for the believers. There's no work that has to be done. Not so for the alleged semi-Pelagians. For the Gallic monks, it was a different view. And for even Augustine himself, it was a different view. He devotes chapters 18, and 20, 18 through 21 of On Grace and Free Will to, works, to faith plus works as necessary for salvation. Let's briefly consider the historical anachronisms. When we look at the Gallic monks of the 5th century, we see that there were no semi-Pelagians in 5th century Roman Gaul. Now, that might be surprising to many of you. I spent five years of my life uh, studying the Gallic monks, John Cassian, Vincent of Lorenz, and Faustus of Ries. But when we analyze their views of grace, we see that they held to the necessity of grace. Here's Cassian, the origin not only of good acts, but even of good work, good, good thoughts is in God. He both inspires us the beginnings of a holy will and grants the ability and the opportunity to bring to fulfillment the things that we rightly desire. There are plenty more. I'll, I'll skip a few quotes here. We can review these later. Uh, but we can even look at Augustine himself, who says this. Of those brethren of ours, men's wills are anticipated by God's grace. This is what they hold. Men's wills are anticipated by God's grace and to the agreement that no one can suffice for himself either for beginning or for completing any good work. So even Augustine himself admits that the Gallic monks held to the necessity of grace. They were not semi-Pelagians. Okay, the term was used pejoratively in originating in the 16th century to describe one's contemporary ideological opponents. I think we'll get into that in cross-examination. And moving along, finally, my third argument is that it's a useless 
terminology. Uh, it doesn't serve much purpose. It's a pejorative in origin. It'd be like creating a category called semi-Nestorianism. There are no semi-Pelagians around because when everybody's a semi-Pelagian, then nobody is a semi-Pelagian. So here's a nice Toy Story meme where if everybody, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, American Evangelicals, traditional Southern Baptist, right, Catholic, Kurt, that's Church, time right there. If, if everyone that's, is a semi-Pelagian, uh, then, then no Kurt, one is. Kurt, that's time right there. All right, Great. thank you, Kurt, and thank you, Twitter fan, for those opening statements. Now we're going to transition to our rebuttal rounds, which are five-minute rebuttals. And so, Twitter fan, you are back in the seat, and I will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Thanks so much. It's great to have the opportunity to respond. In terms of the definition of semi-Pelagianism, the concise Oxford Dictionary or the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology are not unreasonable places to begin with a discussion of the meaning. But of course, in the very cursory way in which they define semi-Pelagianism, it leaves open a lot of question about what's intended by the definition provided. For example, in the first of those definitions, the, de the definition states, uh, while not denying the necessity of grace for salvation, so uh, Leighton Flower's position doesn't deny the necessity of grace for salvation, as we heard, it maintains that the first steps toward the Christian life were ordinarily taken by the human will and that grace supervened only later. So the question is, what does that what does that statement imply? And the answer is that it implies the absence of any need for irresistible grace in the Calvinist sense or prevenient grace in the Arminian sense. So with this definition of semi-Pelagianism, you know, the uh, Arminians are excluded from the definition of semi-Pelagianism, but Leighton Flowers is included because he thinks that people can just by hearing the gospel message and having their natural capabilities of being able to believe things that are true, that they can believe the gospel, that they don't need a prevenient grace to go and supervene. And that the only supervening grace will come later when the Holy Spirit indwells the person. Similarly, when it says in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, an unaided will performed the initial act of faith. Of course, the question is, does anyone think that this evangelical dictionary of theology means to ex means to include or sorry to exclude the gospel message itself? Surely not. Of course, the wording of that dictionary's entry may not make that clear, but if you look at the other usage in history of this term, the background from which the dictionary provides its de definition, the gospel is something that's excluded. That's not what we're talking about when we say that the will is unaided. We're, we're not including general revelation, we're not including the gospel. We're talking about unaided by a work of God's supernatural grace in the person's heart. And that's a view that Leighton Flowers explicitly mocks and rejects. As for doctrinal differences between semi-Pelagianism and provisionism that are alleged here, the first one was this idea of illuminating grace, meaning, the gospel message itself or general revelation. But again, those are excluded from the category of grace that we're talking about when we're talking about the issues of semi-Pelagianism, even on these dictionary definitions that we were talking about before, even if it's not explicitly in those dictionary definitions, that is the background. 
that goes with them. Uh, as far as the question of whether there's a causality inwardly from these outward things, certainly Leighton Flowers doesn't believe that people are caused in an Augustinian sense to believe, maybe has some other sense of in which people are caused to believe. But keep in mind as well, that according to Leighton Flowers, people who haven't heard the gospel preached can still act and can still then receive the gospel as a blessing from God for what they did, a, a great a response that God provides to these people based on something they did before they ever heard the gospel. As for the concurrent divine grace being something that's a possible view, of course, I, the question is not whether it's a possible view. It's, of course, the question is whether or not it's something that Leighton actually teaches. I'm not aware of him teaching it. Seems as though he might be willing to say that our very life and existence comes from God. But again, that's just nature again. We're not talking anymore about uh, grace that produces an effect in a person, such as in, in, in Arminianism, prevenient grace that produces the enabling of people's ability to believe, or in Augustinianism, an irresistible grace that actually produces belief. The Holy Spirit's drawing as a necessary condition in provisionism means the gospel message, uh, not some act of grace in the person's heart that changes them. Unfortunately, time is limited to address all the other points. Uh, I would just simply uh, sort of table the question about whether there were semi Pelagians in the fifth century uh, as it's not necessarily central to this particular debate. All right, thank you for that rebuttal. And Kurt, you're up for your five minute rebuttal and I'll start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Thank you for that response, uh, Frank. Uh, just a quick uh, refresher. In my opener, I presented three arguments looking at doctrinal differences between provisionism and semi-Pelagianism, considering historical anachronisms, and then also sharing that it's a useless terminology because it's so broad and vague. And I want to start by actually illustrating how it's broad and vague. Uh, in Frank's definition of semi-Pelagian in his opening speech, uh, he described it as a system of beliefs that lies between an Augustinian system and a Pelagianist system. He gave two uh, uh, perhaps sub-definitions. We'll look at that in cross-examination. A system that includes some, but not substantially all, of the Pelagian errors, or a system that includes errors that are in the direction of Pelagianism, but which do not go to the Pelagian extreme. So if it simply is defined as going in the direction of Pelagianism, then this means that if you are 1% Pelagian, that you are semi-Pelagian. Well, I don't know how or why we should think that if you're 1% or 10% or 35 or 50%, what constitutes as semi-Pelagianism precisely? Uh, does this mean that James White, a Reformed Baptist uh, who believes in... Uh, rejects paedobaptism is a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian, right? This is, that would be a really strange definition for semi-Pelagianism. And then it, it really opens up even broader about who qualifies as a semi-Pelagian. But secondly, why should we call persons going in one direction toward Pelagianism as semi-Pelagians and not say semi-Augustinians? And this is one of the, uh, positions of the scholars who write on the Gallic monks. Some prefer to call them semi-Augustinians. The Gallic monks themselves never would have uh, taken that label semi-Pelagian, a label which occurs a thousand years after they existed. Uh, all right, I want to uh, address a few other things. Looking at the title slide of Frank's uh, opener, uh, 
he sort of reframed the question, is provisionism semi-Pelagian? That uh, is an important distinction because that's an adjective. Is it semi-Pelagian? The question of tonight's debate is, is provisionism semi-Pelagianism? And is far more as a noun, a question of identity. And so that that's a much harder question and uh, something that I'm not sure that uh, Frank addresses. Next, I want to look, consider how Frank has identified provisionism as the beliefs of Leighton Flowers, whether it's an article, maybe a tweet Leighton has put out. And while uh, Leighton is, is free to say and write and publish as he, as he wants, I think that provisionism is broader than merely the beliefs of Leighton Flowers and that we should look at the provide acrostic as our metric, as our measure. It's wholly plausible that Leighton Flowers, a self-identified popularizer, could say something that is, frankly, full-out Pelagian, and that would preclude him from being a semi-Pelagian, but he'd be a full Pelagian. Uh, and so that's why I think it's a little tricky to depend on, you know, something that Leighton himself might say. Now, the I of the provide acrostic is far broader than Frank is giving credit here. Uh, the illuminating grace, the I, that description doesn't say whether it's external or internal grace. And he's only depending upon Leighton and what Leighton has said for external grace. Now, again, I'll repeat the points I said in my opener. If you think that's external grace, well, external grace still has an internal effect. And so God may work in the world in such a way that the external graces are in effect, uh, both an E and an A of internal grace. Now that might separate Leighton from other provisionists, but again, that doesn't mean that Leighton's views are representative of all of provisionism. And in fact, I think Frank in one of his prepisodes uh, admitted as much that the traditional statement, Leighton and the traditional statement are a subset of provisionism. It is a broader camp than the camp from which it was born, the, the traditional Southern Baptists. Uh, so we've looked at semi-Pelagianism as a definition that's you know, far too broad, where anyone can be a semi-Pelagian. Uh, last, I want to look at the uh, dictionary definitions. So Frank just said that the language of those dictionaries might not be that clear. Uh, uh, and so uh, something close to that. Uh, that's really important because as a made-up term, there has to be further refinement about what people believe. And so this continues to demonstrate the amorphous uh, uh, scope of what semi-Pelagianism is. And for that reason, I still think the term is useless, and we'll probably get more into that in cross-examination. All right, guys, thank you both for those openings and rebuttals. And so now we are going to transition to our cross-examination. Once again, it's going to be a 40-minute cross-ex. Both of you get 20 minutes each to lead with questions. Uh, the In that, if you can make your question as short and concise as possible and allow your opponent to respond to those questions in a fair manner, it will be greatly appreciated. I think it'll be beneficial for you guys and the audience. Also, let's make sure we stay clear ad hominems. The only time I will interrupt is if I hear ad hominems and if I fear that the conversation is veering off to some far off land that's not in line with the topic, all right? Uh, that said, uh, Tirith the Fan, you are up first for your 20 minute cross X of Kurt. And I will start your time as soon as you ask your first question. Thanks so much. I guess I'll start with this 
definition of provisionism as being just limited to the acrostic and not incorporating Leighton's uh, own views. In the, in the acrostic, the P, which says people sin, which separates all from fellowship with God, therefore a divine provision became necessary. Does that, does that include infants who are, have not personally committed any sins? What's all there mean include infants? Yeah, uh, well, we, we might get into this, uh, Frank, um, but you had mentioned you had problems with ambiguities with the, uh, the, the provide acrostic. I, too, have problems with those ambiguities, and we might have some agreement. Uh, furthermore, the way that this is worded, and I wasn't a part of this at all, uh, I don't identify as a provisionist, um, some of these points are points that Calvinists, I mean, even Calvinists can agree. People sin, which separates all from the fellowship with God. Therefore, divine provision became necessary. Calvinists can agree with that. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you're asking what provisionists believe, I would, I would perhaps say that there's a spectrum here, um, at least logic, logically, uh, as far as the acrostic is concerned. It, it's, it's so broad. Um, and in that sense, I don't know that it's hel a helpful term to distinguish between the views of some provisionists uh, from uh, Calvinists or Arminians. So how, how would we know what this means, if it means anything at all? Well, I think, I think that we would, we would say it, it, it means something very broad, um, that sin separates us from fellowship with God, and, and the necessity for the, well, divine provision. I, I would go further, necessity of the atonement. Um, so I, yeah, I just think it's so broad and, and there might be a case to be made that it needs refining, uh, or unless it's intentionally broad, uh, I don't know. And to be honest, I hadn't, I haven't studied the history of the, the formulation of the provisionist movement enough, uh, to know. So in many cases, if, you know, if I read a letter from you, and I wanted to interpret that letter, I might look to the rest of the things I've seen from you uh, to interpret what does that letter mean? Is that a fair way in general of performing hermeneutics? Uh, yes, that is. So if this provisionism acrostic is the work of Leighton Flowers, then is it okay to look to Leighton Flowers' work to interpret what does he mean by it? So I watched this video, What is Provisionism, put out four years ago. In that video, Leighton says someone else made this acrostic. Okay. So, so yeah. Does that mean we should we have no clue as, as to how, it, how to understand it? Or? Well, we have some idea, and we certainly have some idea what Leighton thinks of it. Uh, but if, if Leighton were to make claims which are narrower than what the acrostic allows then he's he's presenting a position that could simply be a subset of provisionists and you know if, if we were to bring in another fellow uh warren mcgrew uh, you know i think he disagrees with leighton on a number of issues uh i first thing that comes to mind is divine foreknowledge right so there is a diversity of, of opinions uh on theological matters and and i think that even on the provide acrostic there would be a difference of opinion on how to interpret those things. Like there are intra-reform debates and intra-Arminian debates, there are intra-provisionist debates. So when it comes to the, uh, the interpretation of the I in provide, which says illuminating grace, what's the reason that my interpretation is 
any better or worse than your interpretation? Are we just left with a postmodern, you know, everybody's, you know, let's all get some cookies and we're all happy. Yeah, yeah. To be clear, and, and I'll, I'm not quite granting the point, but I'll grant a possible point here. Um, the, the problem is that this language is too broad. So we don't know exactly what was meant by provides clearly revealed truth. So you, you have rightly looked at Leighton, and we see that Leighton makes a lot of references about external grace. Uh, but my first point is to say that the, the written language of the eye and that the description therein is, so, is broader than what Leighton proposes, such that you might think when it says provides clearly revealed truth, that that occurs with regard to uh, internal grace, an act of internal grace by God. The eye allows for that, as strange as it may be. Um, so that's why, again, it's a it's a broad term. But but also, as I had mentioned, uh, with my three subpoints uh, regarding grace and provisionism, you could still hold to concurrent grace, for example, uh, and you might hold to formal causality. That was the second one, right? That God is the formal cause of our wills, and so that itself is the act of grace. Uh, that that it continues on post-fall. Uh, at the end of the day, I think what we are seeing with the dictionary definitions of semi-Pelagianism is really a, a reformed approach here and a lack of clarity on terms about uh, super-added uh, grace or some would even call regenerative grace. That's the absence of regenerative grace. But you know, even Arminians disagree with that. Eastern Orthodox disagree with that. So, uh, you know, I'm suspect of the definition of semi-Pelagianism, and I'm suspect of the broad nature of provisionism to help us here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so on the way that you've explained things, if I heard you correctly, it sounds as though if we go back to the P, the people sin in the provisionism acronym, and the, the only explanation provided there is a list of uh, scripture citations and the statement which separates us, which separates all from fellowship with God. Therefore, a divine provision became necessary. Uh, is that uh, is it reasonable to say that that's broad enough to include semi-Pelagian views as well as a view of original sin? Uh, my 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 intuition says yes, uh, but as I'd mentioned, it's so broad that it could include Calvinists the way that it's written. Um, and so, you know, for that reason, uh, in terms of an issue of identity, it shows that provisionism is not semi-Pelagianism because you could be a Calvinist and affirm the P, which maybe makes you a semi-provisionist. I don't know. Uh, it depends on how many points you, you've got to affirm to be a semi-provisionist. Uh, so on the R, the R of provide is, is for this word responsible, which Leighton or whoever drafted this acronym describes in, in an unusual way. It's not, not the usual sense of responsible, but it says everyone is able to respond to God's appeal for reconciliation because a divine provision will be heard and understood. Now, the way I understand this is that he means everyone is naturally able to respond. Are you suggesting that that, again, that this is just so broad that it can include the everyone's naturally able and also can include everyone is supernaturally able? 
Um, I, I wouldn't phrase it quite like that, but y you're picking up what I'm putting down here. I mean, I, for each of the points, I sort of put down different soteriological camps. Uh, so the Wesleyan Arminian, who holds to, you know, common grace, uh, going out to all, I don't think that a Calvinist could affirm the R, um, but even Wesleyans would say that everyone is able to respond. And that's because of God's uh, provenient grace or common grace, depending upon how the type of Arminian defines it. Um, so yeah, I, I, again, I just think it's in some ways it's, it's either intentionally broad or it's sloppy language and, and needs to be refined. Okay. Uh, now my take is that this everyone again, doesn't include infants because it seems like it would be nonsense to say that everyone here is, is able to respond to God's yeah. appeals. Uh, Again, we're, we're not debating can, the truth to the truth of provisionism, uh, you know. That's that's fair that we're not debating the truth. But again, if this everyone in the in R is uh, is interpreted as meaning moral you know, people who are capable of committing personal individual sins and that infants are excluded from that, then doesn't it stand to reason that which separates all from fellowship also excludes infants? Well, as far as the R, you know, if you hold to a post-mortem view, uh, sort of like, you know, post-mortem evangelism, second chance, well, it would be for the infant's first chance, they would, logically speaking, be able to fit under that everyone. Everyone is able to respond to God's appeal. Uh, again, it might depend on the view of the provisionist. So you think that provisionism is broad enough to incorporate people who don't believe that or to people who suggest that there's a, like an originist view that there's afterlife further reconciliation. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's insanely broad. Uh, Calvinists can affirm three of the points. Uh, Wesley and Arminians can affirm uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, I think. Uh, you have uh, Emeraldi and Calvinists that could affirm the V. Uh, you, you know, it's just... I, I, I'm not persuaded. One of the reasons why I'm not a provisionist is because I'm not persuaded that this is a, a helpful acrostic, which differentiates the views of at least the most popular uh, provisionists from Calvinism and Arminianism. Again, maybe it was intended to be broad. I don't know. Uh, or it, it could just be sloppy language. So turning to that V for vicarious atonement, the the explanation given there of sufficient value for the sins, that part uh, seems you know, broad enough to encompass even, uh, you know, Calvinists in terms of the sufficient value, but the provides a way for anyone to be saved on the basis of Christ's shed blood. Again, are, are you interpreting this as broadly, so broadly as it would include without irresistible or pre, in an Arminian sense, prevenient grace? That that's also included within the scope of V. Uh, could you could you rephrase your, your question here about uh, how it relates to the uh, provides a way for anyone? So it says that the that this this atonement is the divine provision, and that it provides a way for anyone to be saved. And I meant you mentioned at the beginning. I think when you were describing the the part the the teachings of provisionism, not only the illuminating grace, the gospel message, that is how Leighton presents it, but 
also, you mentioned, I think, the work of Christ on the cross. Yeah, from Article 4 of the traditional uh, statement, uh, we affirm that, God, that grace is God's generous decision to provide salvation for any person by taking all of the initiative in providing atonement, right? So all of the work for salvation is accomplished by Christ. And as provisionists hold, uh, we're simply accepting a gift. We don't do work to earn salvation. I think that's what's meant uh, by the V, uh, although I'm not a provisionist, but I'm trying my best to understand the acrostic. <laughs> it is an odd situation where both of us are not provisionists, as far as I know, because, you know, as you said, it, it is potentially very broad. Uh, that said, the, the point of this question is, isn't this phrase so broad that it does include a situation where the grace that's provided is the, the grace of just allowing people to exist, the, this uh, first grace of being created yeah, yeah, and continuing yeah. to exist, the gospel message and the death of Christ on the cross, but not some yes, additional... If, yeah, go ahead. If, if you're... If I think I'm understanding you, um, if I may, are you wondering if semi-Pelagians could fall within provisionism? Uh, if that's your question, I would say yes, that they could, because it, the term is so broad. But that doesn't mean that provisionism itself is identical with semi-Pelagianism, but it, it certainly allows for it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Is that is that fair? Uh, is that what you're trying to get at? Sure. Yeah. The, the, the idea that the two things are identical, right? obviously I haven't argued for that and that wasn't the, the thesis of the debate at, that I proposed. So uh, they, the O in, in provide, it says open door. And this says the divine provision is offered impartially to all for anyone to enter through faith for whosoever may come to his open arms. Doesn't this at least imply that what makes a difference in salvation is the human agent, not divine grace. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I personally have issues with just the way that's worded, uh, you know, impartially to all. Um, the reality is not everyone's heard the gospel. And so that's why, you know, the open door is sort of tricky. It's, I'm not, I wouldn't use this language um, to describe my own positions. Uh, there's a general call, of course, um, for, for anyone to come. So maybe that's a, it's an open call, an open invitation. Um, yeah. I, I th so my, my question isn't whether it's affirming a general call as opposed to, you know, you have to first figure out if you're elect and then come or something like that. I'm asking whether this statement, when he said, when it says impartially to all, that the implication behind that is the reason some people do come and others don't come does not lie in the grace that God has given. Instead, it lies in the human agent. I see. Uh, I think the position allows for that, but it also allows for the necessity of grace. Um, either externally or even internally um, so that, you know, it's, it's offered to all uh, for anyone, you know, through whom God has uh, provided grace uh, to enter through faith. So again, this is where we just have a, a term, a description so vague, it allows for both positions. 
so it, in this case, you might allow for a position like, let's say, Arminianism, which teaches prevenient grace that enables right. people to come. Because it, it, especially if it's a universal prevenient grace, which is, I think, typical, uh, typically help. But it doesn't seem like it would accommodate an Augustinian view that some people are saved because God gives them an irresistible grace and other people are not saved because they sin and God doesn't give them a grace to overcome. Them. Right, right. So the Calvinist would disagree with the provision being offered to all. Uh, it's only offered to some. Well, it would the impartiality, the implication behind that impartiality is that the accusation, an implied accusation that the Calvinist system is partial because God's grace is doled out differently uh, to different people. Is that, yeah. do you agree with that implication or? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. All right. Turning to again, the, deep, yeah. go ahead. I was gonna say, yeah, you know, again, just to be clear to, to our audience, you know, we're, we're not necessarily here to debate whether it's a true or false proposition. Um, you know, right. uh, yeah. that's a debate for another evening. And pro presumably with someone who agrees with the position. That would be <laughs> a, a good so uh, destroyed, the, the D says destroyed, and it says for unbelief and resisting the Holy Spirit's drawing to God's mercy will be the divine provision of justice. Doesn't this seem to imply that the basis for condemnation is not the sin of the people? except for the sin of unbelief or resisting the Holy Spirit's drawing, but all other sins, murder and so forth, are not the basis of destruction. Yeah, I think, I think that's, a, that's a fair reading. It, 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 yeah, it doesn't say that sin is the, the reason for uh, eternal destruction, at least, you know, a specific particular sin. However, when it says the... Uh, resisting the Holy Spirit's drawing, uh, uh, this is broad enough to encompass, encompass both a uh, purely, if that's such a thing, semi, purely semi-Pelagian view, and also an Arminian view, or, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, so to that, I don't know that semi-Pelagianism is, is so particularly and narrowly defined to address rejection of the gospel. Uh, but rather that man can take the initial step devoid of grace. Okay. Uh, on the E for eternal security in the acronym, it says is the divine provision that is everlasting for all true believers. Uh, now, I can understand, you, you started to talk about the, the fifth century folks, and I could see why this particular piece wouldn't seem to, you know, the Cassianites, if you want to call them that, or the, they, they wouldn't necessarily buy into this particular point of provisionism. So if someone was going to uh, say what the Cassianites believe, that's semi-Pelagian. Uh, semi uh, now, in terms of the, the, the definitions that you offered uh, from the dictionary, this those definitions wouldn't exclude this plank of eternal security. Is that accurate? Uh, sorry, say, say that again. Your your definitions from the dictionaries, they, they do not right. exclude this eternal security, even though Cassian would probably think this is nonsense. Right, 
Yeah, that's that's right. Again, the, the definition is so broad that it wouldn't get into perseverance or preservation. All right. Well, I don't think I have enough time to ask another good question. So the five seconds left, I'll just turn back over. All right. Thank you for that. All right, Kurt, you're up for your 20 minute cross examination of Tour de Fin. Great, great. Um... I'm having a, a fun time here, Frank. Uh, so thanks for uh, indulging me with my answers. You know, we, we haven't gotten much into the historical anachronism yet. And uh, before we get to the fifth century, let's maybe start with the term uh, and its origins. So I, I, because I've watched your episodes, I know that you have read what I think is an excellent work by Bacchus and Grudrian. Uh, it's this uh, semi-Pelagianism, the origins of the term and its passage into the history of heresy. So uh, since I need to ask a question, can you confirm that you've read this article? Yes. And I found it a, a delight to read. It definitely is a step forward in the historical inquiry. A lot of previous works would just cite Nicholas Sanders or other Roman Catholics fighting Molina. And then uh, still others noticed the Lutheran slightly before then in, in the formula of Concord, but they, they took it to the next step. Um, but they and, didn't and go so far as, go ahead. I was going to say, so for our audience, can you confirm that the term semi-Pelagian didn't appear until the writings of Theodore Beza? Uh, what, what year was it that, that, was, that it appeared? So according to their article, 1556 is when that term appeared. So approximately a thousand years after the, the Second Council of Orange in 529. So, and, you know, now it's persisted since then, but it, you know, it came to be, apparently came to be for the first time then. I know a couple of people say that the schoolmen used this term, but I couldn't find it in the schoolmen myself. So. And who, who was the target? Who was the audience of Beza at that time? So that's an well, interesting uh, me, question. Go ahead. I was going to say, you no, know, the, was it the fifth century? Was it the fifth century monks? No, it wasn't the fifth century monks. The, the primary people that he had in mind, well, one of them was actually a former member of the Reformed Church in Geneva, uh, uh, one particular guy, Turton, the Francis Turton, for whom you know, whose name I adopt for these online discussions, his uh, his institutes of Elenctic theology identify that same guy as the leader of modern semi-Pelagianism. So that's that's the target that Beza had originally, and that the early scholastic reformers used as their kind of target. And, and was, this, target. Yeah. was this, yeah, was this term uh, embraced by the opponents of Beza? Meaning like this, uh, I think his name was Castillo or something like that. As far as I know, yeah. no one has ever wanted to be, you have that name applied to them. The closest I found were two people. One of them was, uh, well, Finney, uh, Finney, but Finney said, you know, basically let's get past this label and just talk about whether or not it's right, which I think is probably a more, in many ways, a more important debate, of course. And Ar Arminius, who apparently at one point suggested isn't, maybe semi-Pelagianism is just the truth. And he suggested maybe halfway between two different errors, between the error of Pelagius and some other error, that would be a semi-Pelagianism and that would be okay. But then afterwards, he, I think he kind of, uh, he took some heat for that comment and afterwards said, it, the point is, Let's just get to the truth and not worry about the labels. So uh, as far as you've seen uh, pertaining to the work of Bacchus and Grudrian, uh, the semi-Pelagian label, would, would you agree that it was 
used back in the 16th century in a pejorative manner in most, if not all, cases? Yes, a pejorative manner, yes, because it's a critical label, definitely. It's a negative label because it's the same that someone's making an error in the direction of Pelagianism, which is a very serious error. And, you know, even the people who are kind of, un, you know, reluctantly using the term will sometimes say, well, this isn't heresy. This is like on its way to heresy, something like that. And, and in the 16th century, uh, perhaps a little early 17th century, is there unanimous agreement about what the term means? Well, I mean, in terms of even almost any word in the English language, that's true, that there's not universal agreement on, on the meaning. So, of course not, no. Uh, and can we find meaningful disagreement on, on the term, or is it, is it broader in nature with regard to seeing how the, the authors describe the, the use of the label? I think we could probably see some good, uh, I, not just I think, we can see some good general, you know, uh, a center of the cloud and, and fuzzy edges to it in terms of the usage of the term. Like a lot of words that have a kind of vague vague boundaries to the exact, you know, is this semi-Pelagianism? Is this full Pelagianism? That kind of thing. Sometimes those okay, words yeah, get so, used interchangeably. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So that could help transition to your, your definition here as you've uh, defined it. Uh, on one of your slides, uh, one, two, three, four, definition, semi-Pelagian. Uh, if you could tell me, you know, are these three sentences a description? Are they a definition? Uh, a and B seem to be connected through the conjunctive or. Um, so, you know, you, you say a system that includes errors that are in the direction of Pelagianism. Um, is that, uh, what do you mean in the direction of Pelagianism? So the example I gave was one of the classic examples of semi-Pelagianism, which is the nature of man is harmed by the fall, but not rendered incapable of doing what God commands, which is, I think, the right interpretation of the provide acronym that that, and it's also halfway between the Augustinian position that it's dead and the Pelagian position that it's just fine. So uh, could someone be 1% Pelagian? Suppose you're fully Augustinian and you just, you drink a little bit of the Kool-Aid and you are now 1% Pelagian, 99% Augustinian. Does that make someone a semi-Pelagian? I think it might be better in some cases to focus on whether specific doctrines are Pelagian or semi-Pelagian as opposed to trying to make that entire the entire person, unless... You know, I, I suppose there's some maybe some reasons to do that, but there, there's a difference between saying that Leighton Flowers holds to some sem, uh, semi-Pelagian doctrines, and saying that he is a semi-Pelagian. There's it's a, maybe a very why, small difference, but there is a difference. Why can't we just say Leighton holds to Pelagian errors? Why does it have to be semi-Pelagian errors? Well, in, that's where one of my other def, my other definition comes into place, which is if he holds to a few Pelagian errors, but not the whole. Uh, kit and caboodle, then maybe semi-Pelagian is a good idea, a good way of describing that system. So a system that incorporates, let's say, two or three of the main Pelagian planks, but not the rest. So for example, he uh, Leighton rejects perfectionism, as far as I'm aware. 
and he uh, he he uh, rejects the idea that man is unharmed by the fall. So he doesn't teach that full Pelagian error. He doesn't. He says man's nature is now inclined to sin. So that that's falling short of the full Pelagian error on that point. So he's not fully Pelagian on every plank. But some of his teachings might indeed, uh, like I said, the, his teachings violate the Council of Ephesus, or not <laughs> Ephesus, Carthage. I think it was ad adopted by Ephesus, perhaps. But the Council of Carthage, one of those canons, he seems to pretty clearly violate. And that's a Pelagian error. I mean, by most definitions of what's a Pelagian error. So, but so, point, some of his he, views are Augustinian. Uh, so, could we also say that Leighton is semi-Augustinian? I do, well, I think he would take offense to that description because how much he dislikes Augustine. But even if we, even if it wasn't for just the matter of you know, it would it would hurt his feelings to to use that term, which I I think he doesn't like the term semi-Pelagian either. The uh, I don't have a problem with using semi-Augustinian instead of semi-Pelagian as a way of charitably you know, sparing someone's feelings, if that's the issue. You know, in other words, my, my point is not so much whether or not this uh, label should be revised in a kinder way, as it is to suggest that the underlying, what this term generally means in systematic theology, that's met by provisionism as it's taught by Leighton Flowers. So, you know, I'm concerned that the definition of semi-Pelagian that you've provided is too broad, uh, that it's, you know, as you said, there's sort of, it's a cloud, there's fuzzy, uh, you know, there's a core, but it's fuzzy on the outside. And I don't even know if we can see in the inside of the cloud, um, because there aren't, there aren't specifics per se, whereas with a systematic definition, there is that specific of, you know, man taking the initial steps toward salvation. So I'm wondering if I could read for you some some quotes from church fathers, and if you could tell me if they are semi-Pelagian. Um, so that's, you know, trying to, to gauge here. So uh, <clears throat> here's the first one. And, and I, you know, again, if you could tell me if it's semi-Pelagian. But suppose that ignorance and difficulty are the natural state of the soul, that it begins there and advances toward knowledge and rest as the happy life is brought to perfection within it. Even so, the soul is not denied the power to make this progress by piety and diligent study of the highest things. Does that sound semi-Pelagian? The soul is not denied the power to make his this progress? I take it you're looking uh, up the quote. I, of course, I think almost as with anything, I think that it's very important to find out what's the context to the statement, yep. and, you know, to try and interpret it in context. As I don't have a context in which to place it, it's, it's, it becomes a little bit hard. We could try to break it down. If, it, if I had the actual quotation, I tried to type out some of it. The first part was, suppose that ignorance and difficulty are the natural state. Oh, the natural state. state. Yeah. And, you know, that... And, and in spite of the ignorance and difficulty, the soul is not denied the power to make this progress by piety and diligent study of the highest things. To my mind, that sounds a little bit like something that I I had seen in Cassian in Cassian's writings, but uh, you know, with Cassian, he kind of gives and he takes away. So in some cases, it sounds like he's saying that. Well, I think it's in a few, in maybe one or two places at least, he actually comes right out and says that great that some or he seems to say that people could do this without grace, and in other cases. 
it seems like he's he's talking about cases where people do get grays. So, you know, what what exactly to do with Cassian on those points is, you know, do we explain one by the other, the other by the, you know, do we go to the later Cassian to explain the earlier Cassian and so forth? I don't know if this is Cassian. I don't have it. I don't have that kind of memory. And uh, yeah, I don't know if that's would, helpful. Does it or not. sound does it sound semi Pelagian, right? Sort of the, the, the free, the freedom of the will uh, pertains post fall. And there's not a a super added grace. There's a grace from creation, but there's not a super added grace that has to kind of correct the will. Uh, you know, this author says there's ignorance and difficulty, but the soul is not denied the power to make this progress. That sounds semi-Pelagian, doesn't it? I I mean, to be to be blunt, it, it sort of sounds like it could be referring to somebody like Plato. Not, it's not even a Christian theologian. That, that's such a general statement. It's hard to judge some, you know, based on just a snippet like that. But I will say yeah. that the theme that's there, that the soul can make, if the implication that the author has is that the soul is doing this of its own accord, just based on its own uh, intrinsic nature, then that sounds like it could be Pelagian or it could be semi-Pelagian, but it doesn't, uh, you know, which of those it is, it is is going to depend on additional information you have. And again, a lot of this could be unwound if you say that, you know, the, the, in the context, there's some other information. So, all right, no, let's, sorry. Let's I hope that's one. helpful. I don't know. Yeah. Let's take another one here. Only something that is seen can incite the will to act. We control whether we accept or reject whether we see, but we do not control what we see. So we control whether we accept or reject whether we see. So there's there's power of the will there. Uh, we control those two outcomes. We control what we see. Yeah, whether whether we see, not what we see. They control. Does that sound semi-Pelagian? I I don't know. I I there's a it's totally as I said with snippets it's hard to you know. It doesn't, I don't have, it's not like I claim to have some sixth sense where I get a, you know, a rusty taste in my yeah. mouth when I hear a semi let me give you. Quote. Let me give you a last one, you know, and I'll, I'll read a little broader. Hopefully this will give you greater context. For all these things, the creator deserves praise for instilling in us the power to set out from such a beginning and reach the highest good, for helping us along the way, for fulfilling and completing those who make progress, and for ordaining a most just condemnation for those who sin, that is, for those who refuse to move beyond their starting point or who fall back after they make some progress. Does that sound semi-Pelagian? That, so that, I mean, I, that could almost be this er, some early Augustinian uh, writing. I don't, I mean, I'm Excellent. not sure. Yeah. So all three, all three of these quotations come from on free choice of the will. And uh, the, do you know why I think this is relevant to our debate? <laughs> Since I have to ask a question. <laughs> yeah. my, with my mind reading powers. My thought is that you're, you would like you'd like to make it, you know, Augustine versus Augustine uh, or, or Augustine versus Augustine or old Augustine versus young Augustine, this kind of thing. So there you go. Uh, and, and Augustine recognized his own shift, and he mentioned it, and he explained it, and he tried to justify his change in uh, views. Yeah, and are you aware that the Gallic monks 
used Augustine's writings against Prosper of Aquitaine? I don't remember that specific uh, event, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't at all surprise me. Uh, they, they had fierce back and forth, <laughs> Prosper of Aquitaine and the, uh, the others in Gaul. It yeah, wasn't really so, Gaul at that uh, time anymore, but anyway, it's just, yeah, that area. So uh, if the early Augustine were semi-Pelagian, uh, would that would that open uh, your mind to the possibility that the term itself, semi-Pelagian, is just so so vague uh, and, and too broad, too big of a cloud, to use your analogy, that it really doesn't help us narrow down uh, the theological distinctives? I think that, no, I mean, the short answer is no. I think it would, I think that it's fine if the term is so broad that it encompasses people before Cassian, uh, like origin, aspects of origin, I think are, fall well within the scope of what I've described. And I think as well, probably within I'm not 100% sure that that they fall within the scope of those two def dictionary definitions you provided, but they very well might. Uh, and and Evagrius, who you know, seems to be Cassian's uh, you know source for a lot of his views, I think you know again these the origin Evagrius Cassian tra trail may indeed meet a broad definition of semi-Pelagian without meeting a more narrow definition, and also you know I. I appreciate that there's there's value to broad terms and there's value to very narrow and very specific terms. Uh, I think the Cassianite label would be much less useful today, but I anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, so, um, you know, looking back on the systematic definitions, which I know you've also done, if, if it's shown that there are no semi-Pelagians in fifth century uh, Roman Gaul. Uh, the early Augustine himself holding to that view of the Gallic monks and the wide array of Christians today uh, who allegedly hold, hold this view, but in reality don't, uh, what value is there in, a, in the term other than that it's a pejorative word for people that disagree with one's self? Well, if it were just a term for non-Calvinists or non-Augustinians, even then, I suppose it would just be that there's a simpler term to say non-Augustinians. But of course, the non-Augustinian realm includes Pelagians, and Pelagianism is a very serious heresy. So it's nice to have a term that says you're not an Augustinian and that dis distinguishes you from being a Pelagian. Uh, in, can, in that way, be, it's actually a helpful term. Yeah. Can you be non-Augustinian and non-Pelagian? Uh, well, you could be a non-Christian altogether, right? Like, uh, you could I be mean, within a... Christendom, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, at least we're whittling down, to, you know, narrowing the field a bit. So you, the way that, I mean, the you can be non-Augustinian and you can be non-Pelagian and the, that is zone, you know, on these key issues, not on every single issue that Augustine ever had. But on these key issues, that that's where we uh, that's where we find semi pelagianism so, Right. So Augustine separates nature and grace. He says, "I myself was also convinced when I was in similar error, thinking that faith whereby we believe on God is not God's gift, but that is uh, in us from ourselves, 
Uh, elsewhere, he says in a letter to Simplician, in the solution of this question, I labored indeed on behalf of the free choice of the human will, but God's grace overcame. So here he separates nature and grace. This plausibly is also the error of Pelagius. What of Christians who believe it that a doctrine of concurrence, that it's both the grace of God and free will of man, that would be a non-Augustinian position and a non-Pelagian position, would it not? Well, there are non-Augustinian and non-Pelagian positions. That's that's one of the that's kind of essential thesis of my uh, argument. Yes. Now, whether could, could provisionists is... be could provisionists be non-Augustinian and non-Pelagian? Yeah, of course. That that's yeah, exactly. All right, guys. Thank you so much for that wonderful cross sex, and uh, you made my job easy. I appreciate that. Didn't have to jump in at all. Appreciate that very much. All right, so we are going to transition to our closing remarks. Both of these are five-minute closings. Audience, make sure you get your questions in so we can have a very uh, involved Q&A. So with that said, uh, Twitter fan, you're up first for your five-minute closing. And I will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Thanks very much. Going through the counterpoints to the arguments I've made, first of all, that one of them was that this is just a useless term. Of course, the usage for the last five centuries or so in Reformed theological systematics, as well as in Lutheran and Roman Catholic usage as well, uh, belies that the, the idea that it's just a useless term. It may not be a particularly uh, well-loved term by people to whom it's applied, and that might be an argument for us to eventually phase it out in favor of better terms. Uh, the that doesn't mean it doesn't have a meaning, and it doesn't mean that that meaning isn't fairly clear. I agree that terms sometimes have fuzzy edges. This is one of those terms that has fuzzy edges, but having fuzzy edges doesn't mean it doesn't have a meaning. And the views of Leighton Flowers fall squarely within that boundary. Now, I appreciate the idea that maybe we can't evaluate provisionism based on Leighton Flowers, uh, but from my standpoint, if Leighton Flowers isn't a provisionist, then I don't know what a provisionist is. And if he doesn't represent provisionism, again, I don't know who, who does. And I do agree that this provisionism graphic by itself is woefully inadequate to the task of defining it. So I've, I think it's a reasonable thing to interpret the acronym the way that it, its number one promoter, uh, Leighton Flowers, interprets it and defines it and explains it. But, you know, obviously people may disagree about that point. As to the question of whether or not there were semi-Pelagians in fifth century Roman Gaul, the question depends on a definition of what that term means. The term wasn't around then. Beliefs like Leighton's, but perhaps not as close to Pelagianism as Leighton's are, were around. Uh, were they exactly the same? Probably not. It wasn't, we're not claiming that there was provisionism in that time period. But in any event, whether or not the uh, semi-Pelagian, so-called semi-Pelagian controversy actually involves semi-Pelagians is an interesting debate, and it depends greatly on how you define semi-Pelagianism. And I'm not sure we made enough progress to answer that question, but whether or not there were, whether or not Cassian meets the definition I provided or whether it meets the definition that was provided by uh, Dr. Jaris, we can kind of leave that to the side. 
Instead, we can focus more on this question of what does illuminating grace mean? My suggestion is that we go with how that's been explained by Leighton Flowers, which is that it's the gospel, not irresistible grace as in Calvinism and not prevenient grace as in Arminianism. The idea that it could be some kind of concurrent grace, again, that's not an explanation that's been offered by Leighton Flowers to my knowledge. And I suppose if it were, it, it's, it would depend what, it, what that means. And it would be hard to understand how it could align with the other teachings of uh, Flowers on this subject. The issue of election, again, the, the election isn't exactly mentioned in the Parisianism graphic. I'll kind of leave that a little bit to the side. The uh, issue of justification doesn't appear to be directly related to the question of the Augustinian Pelagian spectrum. Instead, it seems to be related to the question of sola fide, which wasn't, I mean, there aren't any of the, neither the definition that Dr. Jaris provided nor my definition addresses that issue directly. So we can, again, set that issue to the side. The question of whether or not God, uh, Christ's death on the cross is gracious, we acknowledge it is, but it's not the kind of grace that the dictionary definitions that Dr. Jaros provided are talking about. The same thing, the gospel message is gracious, but it's not the kind of uh, grace that's referred to in these dictionary definitions. The Holy Spirit's drawing. Again, that's according to Flowers, that's met by the gospel message itself, which again, falls short. Now, to the narrow point, of whether or not semi-Pelagianism is exactly identical to provisionism, of course the answer is no. That would be handy if it was that neat, but it isn't. What I'm suggesting is that provisionism, as it's explained by Leighton Flowers, as it's uh, promulgated by Soteriology 101, is semi-Pelagian, and it teaches many semi-Pelagian and sometimes even Pelagian errors. And I've demonstrated that from the canons of councils on semi-Pelagianism, uh, and Pelagianism to the extent that those canons are taken as a definition of those terms. Thanks. All right, thank you. All right, Dr. Kurt, you're up for your five minute closing and I'll start your time as soon as you begin to speak. As you'll recall in my opening remarks, I provided three main arguments for thinking that provisionism is not semi-Pelagianism. First, I considered doctrinal differences. We looked at the concept of nature and grace, we looked at election, and we looked at justification. So I'll briefly uh, remark on those subpoints. Uh, first, the issue of nature and grace. The provisionist, the provisionist acrostic provide is so broad that it could allow for a range of theological models within the camp of provisionism. And so, uh, Frank has said that uh, for justification, he didn't see how it was relevant. Uh, I'm not sure he quite used that term, but he didn't see how even the definition I provided from the systematic uh, theological dictionaries, how it would be relevant to the subject matter. Well, I'm happy to explain how it is relevant because the definition of semi-Pelagianism does allow for a faith plus works model. The individual takes the initial steps of salvation and then grace comes later. Uh, just to paraphrase a number of uh, 
definitions for semi-Pelagianism. This allows for a view of a Roman Catholic view of justification, uh, but the provisionist as a Protestant, however, would reject those models of justification. So let's suppose that you thought that there were semi-Pelagians in the fifth century. These Gallic monks were semi-Pelagians. Uh, you would read their writings and come away thinking, oh gosh, they hold the works righteousness. Well, the provisionist, on the other hand, does not. The provisionist holds to sola fide, thereby demonstrating that it is relevant as a point for showing how provisionism is not semi-Pelagianism. So I think it is relevant. Uh, when we look at concurrence uh, and grace, uh, Frank said he's not sure how uh, Leighton Flowers would respond. Uh, well, again, here, I think there's a mistake in thinking that Leighton Flowers, anything Leighton Flowers says uh, represents provisionism. Uh, I don't think it does. Provisionism is broader as it's described in the acrostic, it's broader than the views of Leighton Flowers. And so one could logically hold to a concurrent view of grace and might even think that the eye of illuminating grace allows for internal grace to operate. It could be concurrent grace. Uh, I also talked about formal causality as, as God's grace. And so I don't think that Frank satisfactorily uh, responded to those. Uh, rather, he used Leighton as the... Uh, uh, exemplar of provisionism when I'm not convinced that we ought to do that. Uh, secondly, I looked at historical anachronisms, and you heard Frank himself grant the pejorative manner of the term as it originated, and that there's no one who really identifies, no one in the 16th century who identified as a semi-Pelagian. Perhaps there are two exceptions he, he brought up, but really that the, the term uh, no one, generally speaking, identifies as a semi-Pelagian. There are other ways to identify one's view of nature and grace. Frank himself, towards the end of our cross-examination, said that a provisionist could be a non-Augustinian and a non-Pelagian. There, there are other ways that are not semi-Pelagian or semi-Augustinian. There are Eastern Greek notions, for example, that look at uh, the concurrence of nature and grace. So that's available to the provisionist and to provisionism. Uh, finally, I want to uh, really hit home here on a, a point granted in the closing statement by Frank, that he has admitted that provisionism is not identical to semi-Pelagianism, and rather that the, uh, the question he was seeking to answer was, is provisionism semi-Pelagian in, in the adjectival use? That wasn't the agreed upon question of, of our discussion. and so. Uh, I think that's that's a, a different issue, obviously related, but a different issue. Rather, this was a question of identity. Does provisionism qualify as semi-Pelagianism? And it appears far from it. It does not. Perhaps there are semi-Pelagians within provisionism, but that's not the same thing as saying that provisionism is semi-Pelagianism. So that's a, that's a critical point. We didn't get to talk much about the Second Council of Orange, and, and hopefully I'll get a chance to hop on uh, Frank's uh, program, Conversations in Calvinism, but there's really a whole world to be discovered when one reads the primary sources of the Gallic monks, because the Second Council of Orange itself is questionable as to whether it rejected semi-Pelagianism. And uh, Frank has even uh, admitted as much in one of his prepisodes. And so I'd be delighted to go on his program and talk more about that, but I encourage others to read the Gallic monks and to consider that the systematic theologies they've learned from are mistaken on a historical basis. All right, guys. Fantastic job, guys. Fantastic job. Appreciate you guys 
again for a fabulous debate and the audience did enjoy it as I did as well and learned a whole bunch and that is the goal for the most part of hearing these debates man continue to grow in knowledge uh of our lord and savior jesus christ and so we are going to transition to uh the q a and we have a whole bunch of questions here for you guys so we will go here with a super chat here this is coming from manny jones thank you manny for the question it may be a little pixelated on your side guys so if you need to need me to i will report the re repeat the question as many times as you need me to. All right, question from Manny Jones. Uh, it doesn't really say who it's to, but let's see. Uh, did anyone other than Noah find grace or were they not part of the all, quote unquote, the all provision, provisionists say? Uh, Dr. Kurt, what do you think? Uh, I, I'm having a little difficulty uh, gauging uh, Manny's intention here. Does Did anyone other than Noah find grace? Um, I'm not sure what he means, even by by find grace. Uh, so yeah, just to be straight up with Manny, you know, I'm a little bit confused about what he means. All right, uh, True the fan, any thoughts? I think the the expression is taken from Genesis six eight, which says, "But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord," and I I think that's where he come where. It comes from, that's right after Genesis 6-7, and the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made them. And then it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I yeah, don't, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, in context there, yeah, it's more of a, a God giving grace to Noah rather than Noah seeking and, uh, you know, pulling himself up by his own bootstraps to find grace. All right, I forgot to give you guys the rules of the Q&A, too. My bad. Both of you guys, Sorry. both of you guys get one minute, and there's no interrupting. Uh, once you, once, <laughs> Apologies. No, you're good. I, I didn't give you the rules, so that's my fault. That's my fault. All right, so here's the next question here. Um, this is for you, Turretin fan. Has Frank read The Myth of Semi-Pelagianism by Dr. Ali Bonner? Second question, if provisionist is semi-Pelagian, can Calvinism be called semi-Gnosticism given Augustinian's history? I've read portions of Ali Bonner's book. There's a number of shortcomings that I didn't care for that I quickly discovered, which included that she doesn't include Pelagius's commentary on Romans among Pelagius' work in terms of evaluating what Pelagius believed. There are reasons why she might not because of the editing that's occurred over the years, but it, it, it takes, unfortunately, it, it drastically shrinks the body of Plagius' works. And then when she evaluates what Plagius did or didn't believe, it, from my perspective, becomes unreliable because of that major exclusion. I don't think it's the only exclusion either that's significant, but that one was already quite significant from my standpoint. As to the second part of the question, if provisionism is semi-Pelagian, can Calvinism be called semi-Gnosticism given Augustine's history? So no, it's not a historical question of uh, whether or not uh, something is semi-Pelagian. It's not because somebody has a history of previously having been Pelagian. Now they're not anymore, so that makes them semi-Pelagian. Uh, Augustine refuted Manichae Manichaeism 
and he was not no longer Manichaean. He continued to, to fight and push back on people who suggested otherwise. Even, I think, uh, some of the Gallic monks had kind of suggested that, that he might be influenced that way. And he responded, and, and first, I think, uh, Prosper of Aquitaine responded, and then Augustine later responded in a slightly different way. Uh, in terms of whether or not it can be called that, I think you'd, which, if you're going to use the same kind of rationale I used, you'd need to have some concepts where there's a spectrum, and at one end of the spectrum is Gnosticism, at the other end of the spectrum there's something else, and Augustinianism is somewhere in the middle on that, and it would have to have some, it would have to be meaningful in some way. So. If it's meaningful in some way, I guess you could try to come up with something like that. But I think that this is more just that's one of the things that, uh, you know, Ken Wilson and others try to push and not something that has any kind of actual meaning. All right, Dr. Kurt. Uh, to the first question, uh, the title of the book by Ali Bonner is The Myth of Pelagianism, Not Semi-Pelagianism. Uh, so just to be clear there. Uh, and secondly, I have not read the book. Uh, my doctoral research looked at the 5th century Gallic monks, commonly, frequently referred to as the semi-Pelagians. I, I like what Frank said, uh, Cassian and company, uh, Vincent of Lorenz and Faustus of Rees, the two other of the three main ones. John Cassian be the best, uh, most common representative. And Faustus's works are not translated into English, except for two letters. Uh, so that's, you know, one of the problems with reading Faustus is only people who read Latin can understand him. So I haven't read the book uh, to the to the sec by Bonner. But also, let me say, I don't have much disagreement with the way Frank described the Pelagian controversy. Uh, I don't I didn't have much to quibble over that. My main research area is on the alleged semi Pelagian controversy. That's really what's of interest to me. The second question. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to say a couple things here uh, just to be highly technical and pedantic. Yeah, someone can call Calvinism whatever they want. It doesn't mean it's accurate. Um, but, but, but two, we shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. Um, you know, this is part of my beef with semi-Pelagianism, calling something semi-Gnosticism. I think that's, I, frankly, I think, oh, pun intended. Frankly, I think that's ridiculous. Um, just, just stick to the doctrinal subjects that are in question and decide whether you think those are true or false and we should use labels as best we can you know calvinism arminianism those those are reasonable labels uh, but trying to pigeonhole people to shoehorn them into labels they wouldn't agree with and really is just too broad uh i don't think is fair at all so that'd be how i would answer the second question all right thank you guys very much and here is a question Coming from uh, Mr. Warren McGrew. Um, this is for you, Turretin, as obviously it is. Uh, how many of the 14 points of Pelagianism must one affirm to be a semi-Pelagian? Pelagius affirmed one out of the 28. One out of 28 out of 14. That's, uh, that's really something. But uh, no, I think he's referring to what, again, to Dr. Bonner's, I, I suppose I should say, there's another Gerald Bonner who's also a scholar in the field. So uh, Dr. Ali Bonner's uh, claim that of the 14 points of Pelagianism identified by Augustine at one point, that Pelagius only held half of one or some, something to that effect. Uh, I find a better way of 
or a more unambiguous way of defining Pelagianism is probably going to the Council of Carthage of 418, looking at those canons that condemn Pelagianism there. I know that uh, Dr. Uh, Jaros has suggested that the Second Council of Orange are also condemning Pelagian errors rather than semi-Pelagian errors. And if so, that would just expand it. Uh, and, you know, it's not purely a question of a math, like a three points is, you know, you're good, but four, uh, at four points, you become magically a semi-Pelagian or something like that. I think, you know, in practice, the issue would be something like if you hold to substantially all of the views and maybe there's one or two you don't, that's going to sound like it fits better in a Pelagian category. And if you hold to, you know, somewhere in the middle, that's going to look more like a semi-Pelagian category. And if you hold to questionably hold to one half of one point, that doesn't sound very Pelagian at all. I don't think that's what, that's certainly not the way that the term gets used usually, although, uh, one reformed author described one of the leading reformed uh, authors as having a semi-Pelagian anthropology because of something he said about the Mary, you know, that she, her only her body was purified for some reason. So someone said that that issue on that point, he's he's taking a semi-Pelagian anthropology. So you know that I think that's a useful description of you know when you when you find define it narrowly on a doctrinal point and not say, of course, Van Maastricht isn't generally a semi-Pelagian, he's generally quite high Calvinist. But, you know, in any event, uh, back over to you. All right, doctor. Oh, I get to answer questions not directed to me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> well, this is uh, th this was a point of contention uh, regarding the term semi-Pelagian, uh, as, as some of you may remember. You know, how, how much of Pelagian positions have to be embraced to be semi-Pelagian. And I even said, I, I believe it was in my opener, it may have been my rebuttal, you know, if we're looking at a rejection of paedo-baptism, which was Pelagius's position, and which is part of this, the, the, the discussions in the canons, uh, then James White is semi-Pelagian. But that would be insane, right? No one's going to say that. So the concern is, you know, how much of one thing uh, does one have to hold? And, and I think, you know, I still sort of would would push back on Frank's position here um, that it, you know, it might not be one and a half, but it, it might be two, maybe three of 10. You know, I, I just think there are questions here about the broadness of the label. Um, so, uh, so I, in a sense, uh, I share uh, idol killers concern about the use of labels here. Um, uh, how many of the 14 points of must one affirm to be semi-Pelagian. So yeah, that, that does touch on one of the concerns I had in the debate. All right, all right. And here is a question. Uh, GMW, thank you for the question. Is this a difficult debate because of the real reason the term semi-Pelagianism was created and how it is used by people? What do you think, uh, Kurt? Yeah, yeah, I, yes, affirmative. Uh, and even in Frank's example about a reformed author calling another reformed author semi-Pelagian due to the, the, the views of Mary. That's a perfect example of the pejorative use of this term. It's a, the history, the origin, and contemporary usage is that it, for many people, is just an insult. And in most, if not all these cases, there's no grounding. There's no basis for it. I'm still waiting for these semi-Pelagians to, to come out of the word work to say that 
we don't need grace at all. Now, maybe there's a disagreement on the type of grace that exists or is needed, uh, but that just means that the definition is uh, sloppy and needs refining, uh, which again was an issue Frank brought up with about the dictionary definitions. And I'm happy to agree with that. You know, if we want to define semi-Pelagianism more narrowly to say that it's like the rejection of regenerative grace, uh, then yeah, okay. But then Arminians are are uh, semi-Pelagian. So I just think it needs work and it does make, you know, getting back to the question, it does make these debates difficult, uh, debating terminology. All right, Jotafe? So it's not just an insult. It, it's, it is used as a criticism, but it, there's a difference between a criticism and an insult. And the, the fact that it's a, a negative label doesn't mean that it has no content value. And it's not, depending on the, the actual definition that you, you develop, it's not that hard to find people who are semi-Pelagian. If you use the Nicholas, Nicholas Sanders definition, for example, you'll find that there were his contemporaries among Roman Catholics who are semi-Pelagians. If you look at the Lutheran definition, you'll see the people that Lutherans were targeting, which were other Lutherans. That they, those are the semi-Pelagians. If you look at uh, Beza's use, you can see him naming names of who are these semi-Pelagians. Same thing with other authors of systematic theologies. And even if you turn to Cassian and you go to uh, his uh, Conference 13, Section 11, you'll find material there. The, you know, the editor's title is Whether the Grace of God Precedes or Follows Our Goodwill. That's not Cassian's label, as far as I know, but it's the editor's label. But that's the reason why you know people like uh, Rebecca Harden Weaver, who I think uh, Dr. Jarris cited in his uh, dissertation on, on this topic, she she concludes that he does think that uh, man takes and it can take the initiative, and grace can follow in in some cases, not necessarily in all cases. So that would be within that definition, the dictionary definition of semi-Pelagian that was offered during the debate. All right, all right. And here's a question for you, Turretin. Someone someone asked me a question on Cassian, please. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's gonna ask it, man. A lot of these questions for Turretin. I told you, Turretin, that these, these guys will come at you, man. I told you, man, they'll come at you hard, man. But yeah, anyway, here's a question from Kevin. Thank you, Kevin, for the question. Uh, do you have a problem with Lutheran saying the word and sacraments are the primary means of grace, or is that different than provisionism? So, that is a terminology that they use. I'm, I don't claim to be an expert on Lutheranism. I did listen to some of Dr. Jordan Cooper's discussion of why he believes that Soteriology 101's teaching, which I've identified as provisionism, is semi-Pelagian. I thought that his arguments were compelling, but I don't know the exact reasons why he doesn't believe Lutheranism is semi-Pelagian. I think that the reason would be in that confessional, Lutheris confessional Lutheranism does have a very prominent role for grace. So depending on the definition of semi-Pelagianism that you end up with, if it's so broad as to include Arminians, then I'm not sure how you're going to exclude many Lutherans, if not, uh, if not also the confessional Lutherans. But if you include the narrower one, 
that was mentioned by Dr. Charis, the one that says that man has uh, that man takes the initiative without grace, that narrower one. I think that confessional Lutherans will deny that uh, there's an absence of prevening grace. So they just take uh, take a position that grace precedes all of our works because man's dead in sin, and uh, that's the kind of Luther's bondage of the will adopted in some form or other by by those confessional Lutherans. I hope that's a, an adequate answer. I'm not an expert on the subject, so. All right, uh, Kurt? I'm also far from an expert on it. I might say that they are semi-sacerdotalists uh, for that position. <laughs> uh, and uh, how is it different than provisionism? Uh, provisionism, as, I, as I've been saying, is so broad. Um, you know, I'm not sure precisely uh, what provisionists might say about uh, the word and sacrament being the primary means of grace. So, yeah, I'll essentially pass on that question. All right, all right. And let me see if I can see anything for Kurt. I don't see anything for you, Kurt, man. Can I just have one you. minute to talk about Cassian and, and uh, divine grace? I don't know, man. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Frank, you'll, you'll have to bring me on for a conversation in Calvinism, and, and we'll talk about uh, Cassian's views. Yeah, I think it might that be nice. Be, be good. I would, uh, I would, yeah, I would love to hear you guys talk about that. I think that'd be a fun conversation for you guys. Um, I'm sorry. Here's a question, another question for you, Turretin. They're coming at you hard, man. Uh, how do you interpret Paul's being alive prior to personal sin in Romans chapter seven, verse nine? Romans seven, nine. Just say he's I, personifying Adam and move on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the the uh the the text is obviously part of a longer uh part of a longer passage the the i'll go back a couple of verses to give a little bit of context seven seven says what shall we say then is the law sin god forbid nay i had not known sin but by the law for i had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet but sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the sin, or sorry, for without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. So yeah, I don't, I don't take that. You know, Paul speaking in the person of Adam here, but I do take it as Paul is not uh he's experiencing the condemnation of the law and that's what he means he when he was unaware of the law he was unaware of his condemnation and uh that's that's how i take this as his recognition of his death not as the, the uh law you know making him st from a situation of being spiritually alive to changing him into a situation of spiritually dead all right uh kurt uh, yeah, I mean, this question, like some others, aren't relevant to our debate. Uh, and formally speaking, I'm not a New Testament scholar. I know that some of the positions on Romans 7 are that Paul is personifying Adam. He's he's doing something tricky there. Um, so that's, I, I don't have a, a hard position on the issue. And so I can't really address it. 
All right, all right. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left in Q&A here. So here's a question for both of you guys. Since provisionism is so broad in its doctrinal statement, and so many provisions believe differently on saint, on saint, on saint certain things. I'm confused about what he's trying to say there. Uh, believe differently on so many things, so many certain things. I'm confused on what he meant at the end. Um, I don't know if you guys take a crack at it, if you guys want to mess with it, but um, it's a bit difficult to see what he's getting at at the end of that question or statement. Well, if I could take it first, I'll say, uh, yeah. Nick, I, I agree with you. Provisionism is so broad uh, and, and such that uh, it's not identical to semi-Pelagianism, but might have semi-Pelagians in their midst, might have full Pelagians, perhaps. Uh, and probably not. Uh, I have to go back and check. Uh but uh, yeah, so I think it is broad. I don't know if it's intentionally broad. Uh, and if I had to offer any advice to uh, Leighton and other people within the provisionist movement, I would say go back to the drawing board and, and edit some of these statements because Calvinists, on some of them, Calvinists and Arminians can affirm them. So try to define the terms in such a way that distinguishes the provisionist movement from those two other camps. And I think you'll have, uh, strategically speaking, you'll have a better time uh, bringing people into the fold if that's what your goal is. That's sort of a marketing advice. I have a, uh, well, I asked my question at the Turretin. What, what are your thoughts on that, Turretin? I don't think it's, I think that it's poorly written. The acronym is poorly written and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do a great job of explaining the position. I think the definition of provisionism should be from the uh, milieu of latent flowers and soteriology 101. But obviously, you know, Dr. Jarris and I don't, just don't agree on that point. The, the thing that seemed to spark this particular debate was me taking tweets from soteriology 101 and lining them up with uh, with eight of the canons, the eight condemnatory canons of the Second Council of Orange. And, you know, I didn't use, I don't know if I used the word provisionism there or not, but I take, I was taking those as representative of provisionism. But, uh, you know, I guess that is what it is. All right, I won't ask my question until I'm able to uh, get through. I want to make sure the audience gets their questions in. Hold on, let me... I hold my question to the end. All right, so it says, uh, if federal hairship, this question didn't particularly say to anybody, but if federal hairship is false and everyone is responsible for their sin, doesn't that mean people have the ability to respond to the gospel as well? Is the problem how one defines original sin? Uh, what do you think, Turretin? So, of course, I think federal headship is true. I suppose that a fully explained position on federal headship only really comes around, I would say, with Francis Turton, the historical Francis Turton, not even maybe in its fullest extent with Calvin, much less with Augustine. And yet Augustine also taught original sin. And I'm not sure, you know, there, there are different other different ways of getting to everyone inherits original sin aside from federal headship. I think federal headship is the best explanation, but there are traditionist explanations and there are other kinds of explanations for the universality of original sin. 
that don't rely on it. So as an example from scripture, that's whether or not you think the right explanation is federal headship, you may remember that Levi paid tithes in the loins of Abraham, according to scripture, when Abraham paid those to Melchizedek. So although Abraham is the one who actually did it, Levi is attributed with this action because he's in Abraham's loins at the time. Now, I think federal headship is the best explanation of that. But if you take a traditionist explanation or some other explanation, in any event, uh, that the idea that Levi has to do something to endorse Abraham's previous action is, is missing from the logic of scripture there. So I think it doesn't follow. And now, of course, to ask to the second part, of course, how one defines original sin is very important. And to me, that's one of those main dimensions of the Augustinian versus Pelagianism versus a third option uh, approach. And that's why I don't think just having Augustinianism and Pelagianism as the two positions is enough. You need to have a third position. All right. Uh, Kurt? Uh, while I disagree, uh, while I think that federal headship is false, uh, my own position is is irrelevant to this question. Uh, so it's a conditional. If federal headship is false and everyone is responsible for their sin, doesn't that mean people have the ability to respond to the gospel as well? Frank answered this very well. The answer is no. Uh, it doesn't logically follow. You might hold to a tradition view wherein in inability is passed on through the, the seed of Adam. Uh, so... The, the technical logical answer is no, it doesn't follow. Um, it all does come down to original sin and contingently what you think has or has not been passed on uh, from the fall. Uh, so it'll it'll the ability to respond hinges on one's view of original sin. All right. And Kurt, we have. Question for a question Warren on here. Cassian. And yes. he's going to ask you the question, who is this Cassian you speak of and why is he important to this discussion? All right. Well, I talked a little bit about John Cassian, why, why he's important, fifth century monk. Um, but uh, why is he important to this discussion? Multiple reasons, because the way we interpret Cassian is going to affect how we interpret the Second Council of Orange. And how we interpret the Second Council of Orange is going to affect how we view contemporary discussions on uh, the so-called semi-Pelagians and semi-Pelagianism. But to the issue of grace that Frank had brought up, uh, so I thank you, Warren, for the question. There are some sections in Conference 13 which are questionable and suspect, but you have to read the whole thing. And so I just want to read one, uh, one possibly two passages here. Uh, so if there is a passage about man having free will or even taking the first steps, which, you know, that's questionable, Cassian is clear, and so the grace of God always cooperates with our will for its advantage, and in all things assists, protects, and defends it in such a way as sometimes even to require and look for some effort of good will from it that it may not appear to confer its gifts on one who is asleep or relaxed in a sluggish ease. He continues on. But there are ample passages about Cassian regarding the necessity of divine grace for anything. For I shared a passage earlier about good thoughts coming from God. God incites the will. He drags people. Uh, why does Cassian write this way? Here's the answer. He says, uh, for the God of all must be held to work in all so as to incite, protect, and strengthen, but not to take away the freedom of the will, which he himself has once given. He concludes conference 13, the famous or infamous one by saying essentially that we should avoid trying to 
delineate what exactly is divine grace and human freedom uh, because God works all things in us and yet everything can be ascribed to free will cannot be fully grasped by the mind and reason of man. He's essentially, in a sense, agnostic about how it all actually plays out. That's his conclusion in Conference 13. So that's why it's really important to read the whole thing, not to take his passages out of context, which is what Prosper does when Prosper communicates to Augustine the views of Cassian. And the view of Prosper, Prosper's interpretation of Cassian, is what the systematic theologies today are based upon. And that's why it's important to do historical theology, because it affects the way we do systematic theology. We have to learn from the Christian tradition. So thank you, Warren, for, for your question. All right, Charita. So I certainly agree that there's a lot of value in studying patristic literature, patristic era literature, whether or not they're church fathers. And I, I do have handy here. I don't know if it comes onto the camera view or not. The works of Cassie. There's a little uh, picture of it. So, and I've I've taken the trouble to go through and translate the, uh, and I hope I'll be, a, I'll be able to soon publish the uh, works of Faustus, of Riaz, with, from my standpoint, a very important caution about don't trust this work for theology, but because I I strongly Sorry, disagree are, with it. Are but. you are you, you you translating Faustus's uh, De Grazia or or because I am also on the Holy Spirit. Working. And also, wow. his two, also all his letters and uh, and one sermon, a bunch of his sermons and stuff like that. So whatever I can find. I've also been but, working on a translation. That's great. Well, if 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 what I what if I have is helpful to you, great. And if not, you know, obviously, please feel free to ignore it. Uh, but in any event, I I do think that's important. When I read what Cassian wrote in this conference, I I think there's a reason why a lot of I think there's a reason why he's attributed the view he's attributed. And that's sentences like this pair. The first one is, for if we say that the beginning of free will is in our own power, what about Paul the persecutor? What about Matthew the publican? Of whom one was drawn to salvation while eager for bloodshed and the punishment of the innocent, the other for violence and rapine. He was a tax collector. That's what publican refers to, not a nice guy. So. The second sentence is this, but if we say that the beginning of our free will is always due to the inspiration of the grace of God, what about the faith of Zacchaeus? Or what are we to say of the goodness of the thief on the cross, who by their own desires brought violence to bear on the kingdom of heaven and so prevented the, spirit, the special leadings of their vocation? In other words, by prevented here, I'm taking this in the older sense of preven, meaning go, coming before the special leadings of the vocation. So I see that as a hard, it's hard to interpret that as not meaning that he sees Zacchaeus and the thief on the cross uh, coming of their own volition before grace, as distinct from Paul, where it's the other way around. So, so, so would you Can guys I, say that it seems that Cassian is sort of vacillating back and forth um, between his one position so, and yeah. it seems as though he's like, well, maybe free will can come first. Maybe I can approach, you know, God yeah, just, first. Just to be clear, you know I mean? so, so Cassian, to be clear, part of the confusion arises because Cassian's conferences is not uh, directly a theological treatise. It's it's passing on the teaching of the Egyptian desert fathers uh, for monks on how to overcome sin, 
uh, and even just live uh, in, in Roman Gaul, sort of a translation of Egyptian desert teachings. Uh, nevertheless, we do come across these passages on grace and free will. So how do we understand these things? I you know, argue that Cassian holds to a concurrent model of grace, that it's both free will and the grace of God. His conclusion in Conference 13 lends to that. And regarding these examples that Frank has mentioned, Cassian writes, but let no one imagine that we have brought forward these instances to try to make out that the chief share in our salvation rests with our faith, according to the profane notion of some who attribute everything to free will. That's a knock against Pelagianism. And, uh, and lay down that the grace of God is dispensed in accordance with the uh, desert of each man, right? That's, that's Pelagianism, right? Meritorious grace. But we plainly assert our unconditional opinion that the grace of God is superabounding and sometimes overflows the narrow limits of man's lack of faith. So he clarifies what he means with these examples. That's why you've got to read all of Conference 13 so you can, you can see that. All right. Thank you for that. Um, here's a final question from the audience. Then I'll have a question at the end. Then we'll close it out from there. Uh, this fraternity fan, Dave Cassian, consistently speak of semi-Pelagianism. Having read his work myself, I appreciate an honest answer. Okay. Did uh, he consistently speak in semi-Pelagianism? So, uh, as uh, Dr. Yaris just mentioned, the, the focus of this work wasn't to be part of the Pelagian controversy extended or something like that. Although the, the beginning of this chapter says, and so these are somehow mixed up and indiscriminately confused, so that among many persons, which depends on the others involved in great questionings. So there is some, you know, there's some attempt to educate in a situation where he thinks there's a bit, a lot of people who are confused about the subject. The, but it's not the primary, it's not, let's say, the primary focus of the conferences. Uh, they're more for guidance of, I think their guidance of the monastic life is the primary focus. Uh, so the, to say, did he consistently speak in semi-Pelagianism, I... First of all, it, the, the label is not a label he would have liked because he didn't like Pelagius, as, as Dr. Yars just pointed out. He, when he says, we don't assign the chief role to, to free will, that's a criticism of the view attributed to Pelagius, whether or not Pelagius actually held it or is, you know, the, something we already uh, hinted at. The, he doesn't like Pelagius. He wouldn't want to be called a Pelagian. I don't think he'd like semi-Pelagian either. H however... I'm not aware of something where he later changes his mind. Like Augustine, we, we talked about how August, early Augustine has some terminology that sounds a bit semi-Pelagian. And I think it might even be reasonable to call his early position semi-Pelagian. But in any event, the later Augustine corrected that, improved his position, and took a new position that was a better and more uh, fundamentally biblical position. But I don't see that with Cassian, that there's some you know evolution of his view. That said, I have not studied this for thousands of hours. Uh, and perhaps Dr. Yaris is a better person to answer whether or not Cassian's consistent on this point or, uh, you know, changes over time. I, I think his conferences are I, I can't think of a better source for his discussion on that. And that's you know, largely everyone goes to this conference and even to this chapter 
for his for material to try to put him on one side or the other of the debate. All right, back to Kurt. Um, yeah, so uh, did he consistently speak in semi-Pelagianism? I mean, is that a language? Uh, you know, uh, does the questioner mean in semi-Pelagian terms? Uh, uh, as Frank pointed out, uh, Cassian uh, certainly would have rejected the label. He would have rejected any affiliation with Pelagius, calls him a heretic. Uh, Cassian is the only Western writer to write a work against Nestorianism. And in the first couple of chapters, he, you know, he calls Pelagius a heretic. Uh, so that's that's clear and obvious. And then he takes swipes at him, uh, as I just read for you. One, he takes a swipe at him in, in Conference 13. And elsewhere, there are swipes against people who attribute everything to free will. Uh, so that's a, a knock against Pelagianism. Uh, so again, the term he never would have accepted. Um, and again, I, I think this term uh, really struggles from being theologically useful um, because it's just so broad um, that, you know, as we discussed already, uh, so the answer is no. He didn't. He didn't speak in semi-Pelagianism. He didn't advocate for semi-Pelagian views, even based on how I have defined semi-Pelagianism with the systematic theology dictionaries. All right, cool, cool. So my question that I have is not necessarily it's provisionism, semi-Pelagianism. I just want to get you guys' thoughts on a concern that I have with provisionism. Uh, one of my concerns is that it seems to be this idea of like, it almost seems like those who are not accepted in Calvinism, those who are not accepted in Arminianism, come over to provisionism. We'll accept you. You know what I mean? It almost seems like it has almost this, this aura of inclusivity. You know what I mean? Um, that, that's the, that from, and I don't, I don't, I've actually stopped following the Soteriology 101 group page, um, all that. So I'm not one of those guys who are always in there, you know, chiming in, talking, you know. Um, I'm not a big group guy anyway, even with the Calvinist groups, I don't chime in on those. So my, I guess my, my, my thought is, it's like, it seems to me from what I've observed, it seems to me that provisional has this almost inclusivity um, that, Leighton, I've never heard Leighton say anything like that or any of the primary voices of provision of say anything like that. But just the impression that I get, like, like I would, like the idea of free grace, you know what I mean? Like free grace would be something I would just shudder at. Like, no, you know, I don't think it's biblical. I actually think it's heretical. Um, so would provisionism accept someone who holds the free grace in it? You know what I mean? So is there is there any bounds? Clamp to say, you know, this is not this is not going to go. You know what I mean? This is not going to fly. Not in not in the understanding of provisionism. You know what I mean? I hope you if y'all understand my question right, that's one of my concerns, and I observed that. Wh where does it stop? You know, um, this idea of like, yeah, you're accepted into provisionism. <laughs> I guess it's my question there. Like, uh, I hope my question doesn't come off as brass or hard, but it's a real sincere question that I've thought about. And I'm like, where, where does the wall stop and say, okay, not that, you know what I mean? I don't know who wants to take the question first, but that, that was my concern. I could, I could take it first. Uh, you know, I think, I think your concern, uh, sort of touches on what we've talked about here, that it is so broad, uh, looking at the provide acrostic, that 
I would say that is your marker for what qualifies as provisionism and what doesn't. So looking at the P, for example, people's sin, which separates all from fellowship with God, therefore divine provision became necessary. Well, if you are a full-fledged Pelagian, uh, you would disagree with that. Um, you would you would think that, hey, some people don't sin, and therefore they're not separated, and a divine provision isn't necessary for those people. So, uh, yeah, that, you know, that would be a, a point of how the provide acrostic does give you those fence boundaries for what what is good for provisionism and what's not. I, as I previously stated, I think this is also a weakness for provisionism because it is so broad, as it's stated, that it's difficult in some of these cases to ascertain where it differs from Calvinism and Arminianism. So even though we, all three of us, see them kind of saying, hey, join us, you know, we're not Calvinists, we're not Arminians, it needs, I think it needs revision to further distinguish those points where they disagree. Jordan, any thoughts? There, yeah, I mean, it does seem to attract people who don't want to be part of Calvinism or Arminianism. Although I would think many many Arminian, Arminians would be okay with all with the very broad wording of the provide acronym if that's you know or it's ambiguous enough on its own that it could be interpreted in some Arminian way. Uh, but, you know, I think ultimately there, there does tend to be a problem that the focus of Soteriology 101, and you notice that the graphic with the logo even has Soteriology 101, like in the corner of the logo. Uh, and you'll notice that there in that logo, it, it says, is Calvinism correct? That's part of the logo in the corner of the of the provisionism graphic, and that's that seems to be the fo the focus of sociology 101. It's kind of being anti-Calvinist, trying to oppose Calvinism, and this is kind of drafted in a way that's I think designed to try to unify the opposition to Calvinism or something like that. And the result is that it attracts people who don't even have an orthodox view of God, like denying God's general omniscience uh, or. Uh, you know, th that kind of idea is okay within this concept because someone who denies that God exhaustively knows the future can hold to all of these provide points and therefore be a provisionist. And, you know, that's, uh, from my standpoint, it's not a helpful, uh, you know, flag to fly. And also, I do think that, you know, Leighton has an outsize, uh, influence on the the provisionism uh it's not a trademark per se of his group but if you you know hit if you put it in the search engine you can guess which site's going to come up as your first hit on provisionism it's not it's not going to be you know some random person who's who has once in a while called himself a provisionist it's going to be soteriology 101 so anyway i i hope that answers your question yeah that does that does i appreciate you guys man you know i know my question Probably, you know, I know some folks in the chat and cause, cause over on Warmer Groove's channel, they're like doing a, a, a debate watch live right now. So I'm sure over there, they're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe Martin asked that question. Oh, you know, but, but it's okay. It's, it's fine. You know, I want those kind of questions to be asked and I think it'll be fun. 
for those guys to dive into those type of questions. But nonetheless, I appreciate you guys for coming on. And this was a fantastic debate. One of my favorite debates actually, because I appreciate you guys' decorum and the way you guys communicated. And I love the history behind all this. That is so heartwarming. It allows for us to be able to, you know, sort of get a context behind this discussion of semi-Pelagianism. So I appreciate you guys so much and a lot of the audience does too. So do you guys want to have any closing words before uh, I let you guys go? Yeah, um, I'm happy to say that I enjoyed the debate. Um, I think even in my past debate, the decorum was great. I know sometimes you get folks that kind of go at it here. That's not my style. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and uh, before the, the stream started, I noted to Frank that, you know, I spent hours watching his prep episode, so I felt like I already knew the man, even though he and I haven't interacted. And as I did say in the debate, uh, Frank, I'd love to come on, you know, conversations in Calvinism, and, and we chat more in a non-debate context where we could discuss the way you look through texts, your ability to pull resources together is impressive. Uh, you, you've got to be using Logos or something like that, but you're pulling all sorts of material together. And uh, so I'm, I'm quite impressed. So thanks for agreeing to uh, participate in this debate. Well, thanks to you as well. And I, I do look forward to future conversations with you. Uh, it doesn't have to be in a debate context, but uh, yeah. I, you've been on the program before with Dan. Just I, I don't think I was there that particular day. So, but yeah, I'm sure, I, you know, God willing, we'll have you back on. Oh, yeah, that wasn't. Oh, I guess I thought that was his exclusive thing. And then I saw you guys doing. Oh, yeah, I didn't put two and two together. So, yeah, I guess I have yeah, been yeah. on the program. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you once again, man. And look forward to doing this again sometime, man. And uh, you guys take care and enjoy the rest of your evening. All right. Yeah. Bye for now. All right, another great debate in the books. And I pray that you guys, you know, enjoyed this debate. I did. I thought this debate was really fun. And it really allowed us to take a sort of a look at provisionism, right? Uh, relatively speaking, within church history, provisionism is new. You know, it's a new theological position, uh, to be quite honest. And anyone who, who, uh, who's looked at church, you know, that provision Layton Files would tell you that that position is fairly new, right? Uh, considering church history, historically speaking. So it's, um, it's, it's one of those things where we're able to take a deeper dive into the understanding of provisionism and be able to represent it in a fashion that's respectable to, cause provisionism has, a lot of people that that are what consider themselves provisionists right and so what we want to do um is make sure that as we interact with provisionists and perhaps i notice some provisionists in the live chat as we interact with you um coming from my perspective i'm a calvinist so i do want to make sure that i represent you guys correctly and so that's why not only this debate but all these other debates are so important um, it's not a matter of just being entertained. It's not a matter of just being, just hearing a, a conversation. It's a matter of growing in knowledge, right? Um, we want to love God with our heart, mind, emphasis, mind and soul. So there's this understanding where we want to grow. We want to continue to walk that path of righteousness. And part of that path of righteousness is growing in knowledge of our Lord. And so there are different things out there that we need to understand. We need to be able to represent. And remember, by us being able to represent our opponents correctly and not strawman them and disrespect them or, or um, 
put them in a light that's not correct, uh, we're able to uh, love our neighbor, right? Uh, one of the things that God has called us to do. And so I am very thankful for uh, Francis Turretin and, um, and Dr. Kirk Jarris for coming on the show. And I appreciate them debating this topic um, and so uh, just to address my, my question, uh, and I know Leighton and Leighton is watching, uh, Leighton, one of my concerns was, as I mentioned, it just seems to not have any barriers there, so to speak, um, that would say, okay, this is, we're not going to go this far. Right. Um, and, and Turretin fan brought up a great understanding is like, it seems as though that, that the, 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 the soteriology 101 provisionism as a whole is has almost this combative nature i know that's probably not your intention so i'm not saying you're out there trying to start fights Leighton, or anything like that but it just seems that there is this combativeness that's there and um by the ministry um being designed to refute calvinism um, it does come off as combative. It, it, came, it comes off as you're the enemy. Now, once again, this is not me saying that should, that is the case, Leighton. I know that you consider Calvinists as brothers in Christ. So this is not me attacking you. And I don't want you to think that. Um, but I think it would behoove you to sort of interact with your own statements a little further. Um, to eliminate the hostility that can grow from a ministry that is designed and geared towards refuting Calvinism. Um, if I can give a hint of, uh, recommendation, it probably would be wiser, um, to design your ministry to refuting all forms of heresy or all forms of unbiblical positions from your perspective. Right. Um, so it, it may be wise to do that because, and, and once again, this is not me attacking you, uh, Leighton. This is me giving you, I believe, wise, wise counsel because what it does, it, if you're considering Calvin is to be brothers in Christ, Leighton, then what, what it does, and you may be aware of it or you may not be aware of it, what it does. It, it, it makes a hedge in the ground. It cuts the bridge um, to unity um, in the body. Um, because some, like I, like I told you, Leighton, or it's what I said in general, I say to you, Leighton, but um, what, I, what I've said is that I'm not one to go and comment in the groups. I don't do that. Um, but what I've observed from the groups, and this is part of the reason why I had to depart from Soteriology 101, and this is not me saying that my Calvinist brothers don't do the same thing at times, but what I've observed in the Soteriology 101 is very, very um, negative. It's a very, very negative um, experience. Um, and it, it, it's very, it's a very, combative experience and once again i know my calvinist brothers and sisters can do the same thing um and so they too are to get called out as well 
but with the topic specifically being about provisionism today, um, I think it's something that should be addressed in your streams um, that anyone who calls Calvinists their brothers and sisters in Christ as a provisionist, there needs to be some rules laid out to better manage the group, if that makes sense. Because I'm telling you, uh, from what I've observed and the conversations I have held, it's not delightful. Um, and when, and this is not saying that the reason it's not delightful because Calvinism is being, you know, uh, there are arguments built against Calvinism. That's not why most Calvinists that I spoke to find it unentertaining and undelightful. Um, they find experience undelightful because it seems to be a combative nature that comes along with it. Um, and so nobody feels, nobody desires to have a conversation with the undertone of that conversation being combative. Um, and once again, you may disagree with me, um, and you may agree with me, but I'm just letting you know from the Calvinist perspective and the conversations that I've had with Calvinists as it concerns provisionism, that is the feedback that I get um, concerning uh, provisionism um, and the group that's associated with the, the, the followers of provisionism. And so I think it's extremely important that you address it as the forerunner and the face, if you rather you accept it or not, but as the face of provisionism, I think it's something that you do need to address and not treat it as if it's just people having theological discussions, because I could tell you that it's not just that. Um, and so I, I find it, it very important that you address it and you address it in a way that puts people, the followers, um, puts people not necessarily on edge, but gives them a, a definite understanding that that's not to be tolerated. Um, uh, because once again, it, it's not helpful for the unity of the body. Um, and so it's extremely important for you to have that conversation. And I would recommend having it within your next live stream if possible um, to be able to help and assist in that area. Right, and so uh, that's that's pretty much all I have to say concerning that. I think it's mightily important that you address that because once again, it it, it, it creates um, it's creating a hedge if that makes sense, a, a breakage, and we don't want that, right? We don't want that. But all that said, I am thankful for everyone out there who tuned into the Gospel Truth this evening, and I pray that this debate was a blessing to you. Remember to subscribe to the gospel truth if you have yet to do so if this is your first time uh, coming on the gospel truth look forward to the other debates the only way you can stay lock and key with the debates is to make sure that you subscribe and hit that notification bell and so um, make sure you do that alright uh, enjoy the rest of the evening take care may God bless you and may God keep you